love Christmas, and I especially love Christmas traditions, the presents, the stockings, my mom cooking her amazing Christmas Eve dinner, Bo resenting the hell out of my mom's amazing Christmas Eve dinner, and me giving my kids all the Christmas bells and whistles I never had. But in the midst of all the festivities, I never want my kids to forget the true meaning of Christmas and the man this day is really about. Santa. Santa was the first white man I ever loved, followed by a close second, Terry Bradshaw. But back to Santa. I love Santa so much because I never got to believe in him as a kid. Look who Santa brought me, Daddy. Uh-uh. You better get out of here with that. That was from me and your daddy. You think some fat white man showed up on Jesus' birthday and gave you those full price socks? <laughs> I don't think so. But no matter how hard they tried or didn't try at all, no parent can ever beat Santa because Santa is Christmas. <laughs> and at the Stevens and Lido Christmas party, Santa is and always has been Fred Garner. 364 days a year, Fred is a low-level account manager with a high-level meat intake. But one day a year, Fred becomes a hero to every child at the party because he's Santa. And Santa's the man. So we're on for Tuesday. Hey, hey, what do you think, Fred? But not that man, because he's dead. I mean, who'd be a better Santa than me? I mean, I'm fun, I love kids, and everybody at work is like family to me. Hey, how's everybody taking Fred's death? How am I supposed to know? Focus, all right? First of all, Christmas is about Jesus, not Santa. And second, leave Santa to the white folks. Let's get a black James Bond first. Idris Elba. Hennessy, shaken, not stirred. Ooh. <laughs> Calm down, all right? Look, Stevens and Lido needs a black Santa. I mean, everybody at the office invites an adoptive family to the party. For most of these kids, the only Santa they've ever known has been some random white guy. This is my opportunity to show these kids that Santa can look like them. Mm -hmm. How can Santa look like a kid? Santa looks like Santa. Uh, of course, baby. Santa looks just like Santa. Yep, because there's only one Santa. Mm -hmm. But... Daddy wants to be one of Santa's helpers, isn't that nice? But we'll still get our presents from the real Santa, right? The white one? Yeah! Now, now, at some point... ...of white supremacy. Justice, Gus T. Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date... Thursday, December 25th, 2014. So, I have been told. I hope everyone survived the uh, horror day with uh, as little anguish as possible. I did get various uh, messages in from uh, different listeners, investors, uh, talking about the trials and tribulations they have endured uh, with this uh, mess that uh, that is Christmas. Uh, for folks who did not participate, celebrate, congratulations, kudos. You're doing exactly what you should be doing uh, as an attempted counter-racist with regards to your time and energy. I hope you did something constructive. Uh, if you did not have to spend time on the plantation, you could take this time to do 
things that are important to you uh, that are of constructive value. Uh, definitely do not begrudge anyone who was able to have uh, constructive contact with uh, black people that you have healthy uh, relationships with or as healthy as possible given uh, the toxic conditions of white terrorism. Uh, but definitely thanks to all the folks who have tuned in. Uh, we have done a broadcast on December 25th, I think uh, dating back to 2010. We've been on consecutively every year for December 20th, uh, 25th uh, since 2010, and hopefully that'll continue uh, just to encourage folks to uh, try to disrupt uh, the way that white people have conditioned us to use our time and energy and uh, going around and investing funds and, and wasting a lot of money that we do not have uh, to buy a lot of nonsense that we do not need under conditions of terrorism. Uh, if anything, uh, over everything that we've seen over the last four months, black people, we do not have anything to celebrate. We should be extremely serious about the business of producing justice, ending racism. That being said, broadcast for today, uh, I know uh, tons of folks, uh, they consistently look forward to uh, our guest on today's program and have read much of her material down through the years uh, to give folks the rundown. Again, uh, Trojan Horse, Death of a Dark Nation. Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. The Interracial Con Gang. And the Beauty Con Gang. Lots of counter-racist information that folks can check out. If you are going to participate in any sort of uh, gift-giving, that right there, as Dr. Welsing says all the time, reading is way more important than watching television. So as opposed to getting some uh, nutty movies or what have you, literature, uh, particularly with so much attention on racism, hey, you should have a lot more black people who are serious, focused on, and looking for life-saving information about racism, you can pick out uh, any of the text, uh, have them in ebook format as well. If people don't necessarily want a hardback, if it would be more convenient for them to have uh, an electronic copy that they can have on uh, Kindle or tablet or whatever uh, mobile device that they have, uh, that way that they can read and get more information about why these specific events keep happening and even suggestions on what we can do to end racism. Uh, definitely visit the blog as well, racismws.com. The address again, racismws.com. Constructive info, posts, uh, even some current events things that have just been happening uh, recently that people have been paying attention to. Uh, I know there are lots of folks very happy to have her back on the program and uh, say, you know, man, we, we tolerate <laughs> hearing all of your nutty ranting, Gus, but we really prefer uh, to hear Pam uh, give her thoughts and views on what is happening with racism, white supremacy. Always a pleasure to have her on the program. Joining us once again, uh, Miss Pam, uh, let's get her uh, line here. Pam, are you with us? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, good evening, Gus. Uh, good evening. Thank you uh, for sharing your time and insight. Uh, I know folks always really, really enjoy uh, having you on the program and just uh, appreciate you uh, making it simple 
easy for folks to grasp what's happening uh, and being honest. Uh, just we're all still learning uh, and trying to do the best that we can to figure our way out of this mess of white supremacy. Uh, anything uh, you want to share? Folks may not have, have heard the archives. This might be their first time hearing you on the program. Anything you want to let them know? Um, I can't think of anything offhand other than uh, we got a lot of work ahead of us, um, and it it's not an easy road, and it can be a very alienating road. But um, what I would like, if 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 nothing else, anybody comes away with anything from anything I've written or anything they've heard on your program, is to know that we're in a system. So hopefully, uh, we can add a little bit more insight know our opinions on how the system functions so that we can all be a little less confused because I tell you it's a, it's a struggle uh, it's a struggle not to you know go down not to just have your head turned in a different way you know because you got so much coming at us absolutely absolutely uh, the clip that we uh, began with that is from uh, ABC's new program uh blackish um oh. and i i definitely <laughs> make sure i emphasize i'm not encouraging that anyone watch <laughs> the program at all not for study purposes not for dissecting uh you should know it's out there just in case because i do know a lot of you know us as victims we do spend a lot of time watching television so just as a reference point that's cool but i'm not suggesting watch it at all i just i saw the first episode because dr welsing mentioned it to me and uh, I just wanted to see one so that I could kind of get an idea of what, you know, what it was about so I could comment if asked. I watched that one. And then the clip that you just heard, that's, I think, one of their most recent ones uh, about Christmas. And I thought that was telling for so many reasons, which you heard in the clip, uh, the scene where the main character, black male, uh, he is complaining because he wants to be Santa Claus. He's tired of this tubby white man being Santa Claus at work. And uh, he's talking about this with his family uh, and his black children. Uh, they come up and they're saying, we're still going to get our toys from uh, the real Santa, the white one. And then both the parents uh, begrudgingly say yes. Um, I just, I thought that scene, uh, the show goes on to a lot of nonsense, but just that right there for me emphasizes a lot of the incorrectness and white supremacy that gets enforced uh, with all of this. Did you have anything you wanted to get in on that before we proceed? Well, you know what, when you played that clip, I, I never watched the show. I just, I just can't, I, I can't do it. Uh, but it sounded, for some reason, blackish came into my mind, and I said, wow, I bet you that came from that show, and I, I didn't know for sure. But, you know, it just had that flavor to it of this, the way black people are portrayed on television. When they even talk about race, it comes across a certain way. And um, I, I think that's a major problem, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm guilty of it too. But that's a major problem and a major weapon against us is this, this TV tube and this movie screen. So um, the only thing I would say unilaterally, and it just applies to me across the board, anytime they let black people have a camera and a mic, whether it's a TV show, a movie, whether it's a newscast, broadcast, makes no difference. Anytime they let us say anything on mainstream media, is usually designed to either deceive us or to practice white supremacy or to promote white supremacy. So I would just caution anybody 
Anytime you turn that tube on and a black face is talking, a black face is, is doing anything, it is not in your best interest to buy into it, no matter what it looks like. Ashe. Ashe. Uh, again, I am not encouraging, if anything, I would encourage do not watch that program. And just uh, to the point, I think we say on a regular basis the importance of being serious, deadly serious. Uh, racism, white supremacy is war against black people, and our conduct should reflect that. Uh, I think that right there is what they want to promote, black people not sounding serious, even though they're hinting at the problem of racism, white supremacy, it does not sound serious. It still sounds very cartoonish uh, yes. in the presentation. And that's that white thumbs up, <laughs> racist man, racist woman, racist child. As long as we can portray black people as silly and clowns and buffoons, thumbs up. Our system is A-OK. Um, this is, uh, unfortunately, but glad we were making the correction, your first visit for 2014. It's been I mean, wow, uh, an infinite a number of incidents, tragedies mostly, relating to racism, white supremacy. What, what are some of the main things, major things that have uh, stood out to you uh, as we get ready to conclude 2014? You know, one thing I have noticed, uh, other than the obvious, like the incidents with uh, police shootings and, and black people being uh, killed, the one thing I've noticed is, the you know speaking of the movies and the TV shows, and um, it I'm at the point now where I can't stand I I rather not see a movie with any black people in it I rather not see a TV show with any black people in it, uh, and it's it may sound strange but I've noticed there's a a, a tendency I mean just a, it hasn't started this year but a tendency I put it this way I was looking at a movie uh, and the movie was about 30 years old. And the black people in it were more people, you know, were uh, portrayed more humanely 30 years ago than they are today. Today we're just caricatures. If you watch the TV commercial, there's some commercial comes on value furniture. And the black male is laying in the bed next to his black wife. And she's sitting in the bed. She's dressed like a... You know, she's, she's got this robe on, she's got glasses on, she's got her head tied up, and he's rolling across the bed saying, oh, I can't believe how big this bed is. You know, one side is, you know, it's big enough to sleep, big enough to, 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 for pleasure, big enough to sleep, and he rolls back and forth. And after he does it a couple of times, she looks down at him like a schoolmarm and basically just tells him it's just a bed. So it's like every image is designed to turn us, it's it just a dehumanizing caricature and I haven't seen a single example what's scary to me and I don't know if scary is the right word is every single image that I have seen in every movie and TV show black people are caricatures black people are either defending white people rescuing white people or mistreating and disrespecting and alienated from each other and it just it's just the the wave of images coming at us you know, and I look at it and I just see wave after wave. You got the scandal. You got these different TV shows. You know, um, like I watched um, an episode of House of Cards. It's on Netflix. And I just, what I do, and I suggest this to everybody, don't give anybody your money. You know how I watch my movies? And even some TV shows, I get it from the library for free. I don't pay for anything. So I just happen to rent that. And um, 
you know, it's just, it got a, a black male in it. You know, he's uh, kind of like a, a political insider, doesn't hold an official position. And they have him, he falls in love with a white woman. So it's just the imagery over and over again of black people being disconnected. Like, yeah, black people being disconnected or black people being clownish or buffoonish or, or black people who are portrayed as intelligently, they always don't, they don't want to be with other black people. So the one thing that struck me lately is just wave after wave of imagery, you know, but other than the incident, but there's a whole lot going on. There's so much going on that it's making me dizzy. So I don't know. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I, I am familiar with House of Cards, uh, listener informed me, and I, I co-sign on that big time uh do not i hope nobody went to the movies today or is planning to go to the movies people on the west coast uh to see selma or american sniper or any of the other nonsense the interview that is coming out today i know that's a big tradition uh for a lot of folks to go to the movies for the holidays after everything is done uh i i mean that's one easy thing uh we could do you don't have to be all rowdy and talking about white devils and cracker this and a whole lot of others just hey i do not go to the movies under the system of white supremacy that's one thing you could do economically Uh, i do not have cable under the system of white supremacy if it's programs that you still want to watch she just said you can get them from the library uh, you can watch them online. You don't even have to have Netflix. They have so many sites online where you can watch uh, television programs for free, HD. It's not like they're bad quality. They're uh, high quality uh, for free. Uh, you don't even have to pay the small amount of money for Netflix. And even if you do want Netflix, they have that set up so that you should be able to have four people on the account. So you all can split that so you pay even less. Uh, that's something that we should be big time about, watching the way we spend our finances under the system of white supremacy. Um, Just based on what you said, two things I saw today real quick, and then I I did want to ask about Selma. Um, Number one, I think we have talked about Mark Wahlberg before, uh, Planet of the Apes, Mark Wahlberg, uh, and this white man who is asking for a pardon uh, for his racist crimes. Uh, We had read uh, some of the reports before where when he was a teenager, uh, he had chased black children and called them niggers, uh, he beat a non-white male and made him lose eyesight in his eye he beat mm-hmm. him so badly. Uh, and now he's asking for a pardon because he has been a, a business venture and he needs certain licenses and what have you. And having this criminal record uh, might hold up him being able to get these licenses. They had a PSA with Mark Wahlberg on television today where he was uh, promoting the wounded warriors. Uh, these are veterans who, you know, lost a limb or what have you. Commendable cause. I don't have anything to do with that. Well, they were white people. I don't sympathize with white people. But uh, just the fact that his face is associated with that, like, see, He's reformed his image. This guy is not a racist. This is an upstanding white man who is contributing. He's about the veterans. He's about helping the soldiers. Come on. Don't, don't think of him as a racist. That was just, you know, a little teenage indiscretion. We all, you know, make a, have a little slip up every now and then growing up when you're a young, immature child. But he's grown, and, and we should give him another chance. And I believe this happened in Massachusetts where the governor happens to be a non-white male. Uh, Just another little interesting wrinkle to all that. The second thing I saw, they were playing, uh, they were playing, I guess, uh, older episodes today, and they played Ellen, uh, the gay white woman, Ellen DeGeneres, who Chris Rock compared to Rosa Parks. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. (laughs) But, But why? Why would he compare to Rosa Parks? 
he 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 was promoting his new film and he was saying that he he was talking about the gay rights movement and how uh ellen degeneres has done so much that she is like uh the gay rosa parks uh in terms of what she's been able to do to you know fast forward uh the gay rights movement uh this was in his article uh interview in the the new york magazine that came out at the beginning of the month to promote his new movie well well you disagree i would like I would like to say I was surprised, but I'm not. Uh, you know, comedians and entertainers be, basically become the spokespeople for us anyway. <laughs> right, You know, right. they go to Steve Harvey, they go to different, you know, entertainers to view their political, uh, so-called political beliefs. So, you know, and uh, I just, again, you know, I, I have what I call just a universal, it's just an axiom for me. Any black person that is being paid to be an entertainer, to, to even be a public persona, whether it's politics or entertainment, because basically politics and entertainment are the same thing. Any black person that is, is successful in that arena is beneficial to the white supremacy system. And it doesn't matter if they know they are or not. And many times they appear to be opportunists. But whether they know they're being beneficial to the system or not, they would not be there if they did not if the if the system did not derive some benefit from them. And that's why I say black people, you know, we should be telling our children we should really be careful with our children because these entertainers are set up as the biggest role models they have. And they are nobody's role model. Uh sooner or later they all will be used in some fashion to enhance the system of white supremacy whether a comedian, politician, or entertainer. It doesn't make any difference. So I immediately, I don't have any use for anything that they say. Now, they can say all they want to say, but I don't give credibility to anything a black person in the entertainment industry, or a white person for that matter, says. Because if they weren't beneficial, they would not begin paid this money. They would not get the opportunities that they get. They don't get the opportunities because they're the most talented. They get them because they're the most useful. That's just my own personal belief. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, just <laughs> in, uh, I saw Ellen DeGeneres uh, today, one of her older broadcasts, and uh, she had the cast from Scandal uh, on the show, Kerry Washington and uh, I guess the two lead uh, white males that she is uh, – sexually involved in these uh, gutter sex relationships that they're promoting. And one of the questions that she asked Kerry Washington was, uh, which white man is the better kisser? And so they're, you know, fawning over these uh, two racist suspects and she, she doesn't want to answer and it just goes back and forth for a minute. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is, you know, what we have to watch on December 25th, right? You have the family sitting around and all of that. They have this on waiting for, you know, if this is sporting activity or whatever, people just have this on. As you said, this is constant warfare uh, when it's racism is war against black people in particular, non-white people in total, broadcast like that just right there. And I think it goes right to the point that you were saying about any aspect of entertainment. This is war against black people just a broadcast in every aspect gay white woman 
black female, we want to promote her, not just with one white man, but two white men. <laughs> and who do you kiss better? Uh, in the same vein, my question I was going to ask, um, just your thought. I know you haven't seen the film. I haven't seen the film either, right? Make sure we get that out. But just um, any thoughts, the significance of uh, Selma being released today? This is a biopic on the uh, so-called civil rights movement in Alabama, uh, 1965, led to Bloody Sunday. I think that is depicted uh, in the film. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, the, the black actor that is portraying Dr. King in the same vein in real life is, of course, married to a white woman. Uh, any thoughts about that being released today in addition to everything that has led up to this with all of the protesting and what have you? You know, I, since I haven't seen the movie, I can't speak much about the movie, but I do believe, based on what you told me, is there is definitely an agenda uh, for them, you know, as far as them even, create, even making the movie, even if they didn't release it today, just making the movie. Uh, but being the release today, particularly since Christmas Day is supposed to be such a big movie day or such a big uh, day for films to open on, so there must be some significance, and I would think that maybe it's a, a juxtaposition uh, what what black people are doing versus what we supposedly were doing. Because first of all, I don't I don't let Hollywood tell me give me my history, and I don't know why anybody would trust Hollywood to give you an accurate portrayal of your of black history. So I don't understand going there thinking that you're going to get a true historical perspective. But whatever that movie did. Uh, you know, it would be easier for me if I had seen it, but um, I would think uh, if they were showing black people marching peacefully, perhaps it's a way to make us think that, you know, like you were saying to me earlier, that, see, uh, things have improved, uh, you know, look at what they went through then and look at what you've got now. I don't know, but I do believe there's some political agenda. What do you think? Um. I haven't seen the film, full disclosure, I haven't seen the film, and I will not spend a nickel to see nope. the film. Me either. <laughs> that being said, um, I think uh, just to give a quick run, in fact, I can read the email that I sent out. Uh, someone asked me about the film, and I sent them a review. I put it on my Facebook page. Uh, it's in the Facebook group. I think I tweeted it as well. Uh, it was in boston.com. And the article is, is uh, it's The Convenient Myth of MLK. And they were talking about how – I think Dr. Kerr even talked about this yesterday, that white people, they have a real necrophilic fetish for dead black people. Uh, they hated Dr. King when he was alive. They talked about Dr. King like he was a no good – they talked about Dr. King the same way they talk about Al Sharpton now. And truth mm -hmm. be told, you had a lot of black people who talked about Dr. King the same way they talk about Al Sharpton now. Uh, but once he's dead – then, oh, we can pretend that we love Dr. King. He is a respectable black person. If you Negroes would just behave the way that he is, everything would be all right. Racism wouldn't be a problem. I think that's one, because I've heard a lot of what they call, I think their new $10 term is respectability politics, where they're saying that these protesters are violent because they uh, burned down a building, allegedly, or uh, messed up some property. They become violent, not the violence that is inflicted on black people like uh, Marlene Pinnock or Michael Brown Jr., or Tamir Rice, or Akai Gurley. Black people are violent because they are protesting and upset about racism, white supremacy, saying that they're uh, anti-police. It's been a lot of that said for the last four months. 
that these people are not behaving in the same honorable manner as Dr. King, which is just total hogwash. Well, I mean, not that they have to behave in the same manner or not, but it suggests that if they behaved better, then racism wouldn't be a problem. And that is just nothing could be further from the truth. I also think it's significant, and this is in the review, where they were talking about how this film makes it seem like there were a lot of well-meaning, good white people who wanted to see black people get better treatment, not be subjected to racism. They wanted to see things change. And it really does a disservice to minimize and not give you an accurate picture of the hatred that white people had for Dr. King. You don't get to see as many instances of all the hate mail that he got, the treatment that when he went to your neck of the woods up in Chicago and those whites in Cicero were throwing bricks and what have you over one black family moving into the area and they lost it. You don't really get that sense. Uh, There is some of that. They do depict Bloody Sunday, but you just don't get an accurate representation of white pathology and why we have the same problem now that Dr. King was fighting against then. Those are are just some of the quick points I'm sure I would have. I I will watch the film eventually. I'm just not going to pay for it. So when it becomes available for me to see for free, I will have more to say. But those would be some of my quick points. And again, the other quick point I would get in, uh, just because I know people want to hear you, not me. Um, I think white people do a really good job with these type of films, a film like The Help, a film like Mm -hmm. 12 Years a Slave, uh, The Green Mile. They have a lot of these films where they will talk about racism, but it's in the past. They present it as though racism did exist, but we've made so much progress. That's one of their huge words, progress, progress. Nobody can say we haven't made. Look at how bad it was then. It's not like that now. They do a really good job, and what it, I think it, the impact it has, because a lot of black people, we don't know. We talked about this yesterday. We don't know the history of racism, white supremacy, and how the system, it changes, it morphs. It's the same problem, but it just looks a little bit different. I think that a lot of black people, if you don't know the full history, you'll see a film like that and it will totally confuse you. You will think that racism is just a problem of the past, that this is not the exact same thing that's happening right now. White people are doing the exact same things that uh, they were doing in the 1960s with Dr. King and all the way through. They're doing the exact same thing that's leading to these non-indictments with Eric Garner and Michael Brown, why Darren Wilson can get a million dollars for killing a black person. They're doing the exact same thing, but it just confuses you. So you end up thinking racism is something old and that's not what's happening right now. Uh, and that, that would be my quick thoughts. Um, wanted to, I definitely wanted to ask and, and encourage anyone if you have uh, questions because uh, I know a lot of people said that it was a tough day, <laughs> unfortunately, being around victims uh, who did not want to talk about racism, and it's been such a heavy topic. So if you have questions you want to ask Pam, get her thoughts, feel free to dial in 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Um, in that vein, um, what has your experience been just being the black people that you're around, like, you know, family members, friends, black people that you work with, with, I mean, it's just been in your face. It's like the dirty diaper is right on the top of your nose, it would seem, in terms of racism, white supremacy, war against black people. What has the mood been? Have black people been more willing to talk about racism? Is the denial still there? 
Oh, the denial is, is, is as much as ever. Uh, the thing that I've noticed, well, I don't even know if, if, it's, if this has increased. It may just be my perception, is the level of denial is just as strong as ever. The anti-blackness seems to be increasing, and I think that has a lot to do with the stress level of being a black person in this kind of society, particularly economically. So I personally, what I have witnessed is a deterioration of attitude among black people towards other black people. And denial goes hand in hand with that. I mean, there's a ton of confusion. You know, we got most black families now have people in the family who have married white people or who have uh, bred with white people. Uh, That's a big confusion factor. Uh, Most of the people I know, they watch a lot of television and a lot of movies. Matter of fact, one guy that I work with, he told me a couple of weeks ago that he gets off work. Now, he's got a child and he's married, and when he gets off work, um, he spends about five hours to six hours a day watching TV and movies. And he says, like, he, you know, we, we have to be at work. You know, he has to be at work, at, I think, at 6 in the morning. And so he might be up till 1 o'clock in the morning. And he says he just watches movies like five hours a day. So... Uh, I know another friend of mine, his sisters, they might rent like 15 movies for the whole weekend. So I think it's a form of escapism. I know for me it's a form of escapism, as long as there's no black people in the movie, because then I get drawn right back into reality, because the image I see of black people is usually one that I find uh, disagreeable at best. But... um, I know that the movies serve as an escape for me, but I've just watched black people, to me, sink sink as much in denial that all this stuff that's going on has it pulled some people out of the fog, out of the cloud. I don't think so. I think there might be a small number, but those people, they're going to have to seek some real information, Um, and I do think that might be happening. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I think that maybe the sleeping and I only call it giants, not, not, to, not to hint at any kind of anything, but sometimes I think the sleeping giants are stirring up because of all the things that are becoming more evident that things haven't gotten better. But at the same time, it's like you're getting this numbing, paralyzing drug of television and interracial sex and lots of bad messaging that as you're trying to wait, you know, you're trying to stir up out of that hospital bed that we're in that something comes along and drugs you back up. So it's going to take, I don't know what it's going to take to shake off this drug, this chip that's in our brain. I don't know what it's going to take. I used to think that, yeah, things should get bad. When things really get bad, then black people will be forced to wake up. I don't believe that anymore. I don't know what it would take uh, because um, the level of anti-blackness is one of the most powerful drugs that, we, that we're on right now. So no matter what is done to us, many times we're going to find a way to blame each other. Like I did hear people basically blaming uh, Michael Brown for his response to the police. Okay, yeah, he, sure. He could have done something different. He could have perhaps, uh, had he been taught and trained to realize that he was in a system and that he was, uh, his, you know, th- you know that we're at war, and so therefore your response has to be one about survival. But when you look at it uh, as a young black male, 
I mean, who knows what he had experienced already. So, you know, like anybody, when you feel somebody's disrespecting you and stuff and you're young and you're full of testosterone, you're bound to behave in such a way in which you want to, you know, you feel like you want to get your respect. But I only say that to say that I did hear a black, some black, not a many, because I don't talk to that many black people about anything substantial because it's too frustrating. But I did hear people trying to justify what happened. And I know why they're doing it. At least I think I know. And that is that we want to believe when we see black people being mistreated, we want to believe it can't be us. So if we can somehow make the victim at fault, even partially, we feel safer. So I think that uh, our level of dependency, we are, we are our most dependent state, in my opinion, than we've ever been. We are totally dependent on food, on shelter, on electricity, on entertainment, which is a huge deal. So I think our vulnerability and our fear is almost as big a factor as our confusion. I don't personally believe that black people collectively all together, particularly over a certain age, don't know it's not that things haven't changed, don't know that race, it's all about racism or at least racism is what it is, is all, what it's always been. I don't really believe that all these people over 40 and 50 don't know that it is about racism, that Michael da- Brown died because he was black. I, don't, I can't just really understand how they could not know that had it been a white boy, he wouldn't be dead. But why do they choose to blame him? For the reason I said, they're, they're, they're fearful. And we want to believe that if we do right, eat all our spinach, and, and tie our shoelaces, that we're going to be safe from that kind of uh, danger. So I think the denial is, is, I think it's just a strong, I think it's, it's getting stronger. I... Uh... <clears throat> I know we uh, talked before the program, uh, and I think Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she says almost every time that she visits that uh, she thinks the number one mental illness is the denial of racism, white supremacy. I think she said that every single time that she's been on the program, at least for the last year or so. I know she said it uh, on her last visit last month. Um, and in terms of the point that you just raised, in terms of us wanting to believe that uh, it can't just be that they shot a 12-year-old in two seconds. It can't just be that they did that because they're racist. It's got to be that, you know, he had his pants down or he cursed at him or he was, you know, his fingernails or anything. It's got to be something that he did this. If he hadn't done that, he would still be alive. And if we just do the correct thing, white people won't mistreat us and just not wanting to believe, no, that's not what it is at all. You can do everything perfectly. You can, you can be Dr. King and you'll be Dr. King, where they shot and killed him, too. And I think that was the point that got raised in uh, Selma, too. They act like King was all great and everything, and white people killed him at the end, too. Um, I wanted to read an email because it was just talking about other people having that same uh, frustration and just, just get your uh, response. Person, he was saying that, uh, I just want to tell you, I had a heated discussion today with my girlfriend's father and brother on the issue of white supremacy. What I found to be most interesting, What I found to be the most interesting aspect is they both tried to use the old excuse that we as black folks try to make the recent killings of black folks into an issue of race. These folks even told me that black people often 
offer ourselves up into slavery in tribal wars in Africa. We surrender our own people to them, essentially stating to me that we were complicit in subjugating our own people. The scary part is as the discussion got more heated, my girlfriend's brother became more animated and furious about my opinions of suggesting that we are dominated people under the system of white supremacy. I had to leave the premises. He told me, I'm the racist. <laughs> what, what, uh, what, what do you have about that and, and suggestions on how to navigate if you're going to be around black people that just, hey, it's, they insist it's not racism? You know, I don't know what you should do other than what Mr. Fuller has always suggested. And let me know if I'm breaking up because I, I, I may be breaking up. But I think what Mr. Fuller suggests is, is the road I take. It's not very practical all the time. And it, it, it's not for everybody, but minimize contact, minimize conflict. I try not, when I realize I'm talking to someone who is either that confused, as you know, a polite word for it, or is in that much denial, I know, first of all, I don't have any credibility. That's the one thing I've learned. As a black person talking to a black person who has a certain mindset, I don't have any credibility. So me saying it doesn't mean anything. And if that person gets emotional and upset, then I know that that person doesn't want to know. You know, if they get to the point where they're arguing and they're this and that, that's a clue to me right then and there, conversation over, because you don't want to know. You don't want to, you know, you're not open to information. So a friend of mine used to say, uh, he who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And I find that that's true. You can't, you can't um, and I don't know if this fits, but there's another saying that I heard, and that is, it is impossible to wake someone who is pretending to be asleep. I do think that black people, some of us, want to believe it's not about race. And when you challenge that, you are shaking. You're hitting someplace well, uh, uh, you're, you're hitting them in a denial. You're hitting them in, a, in, in some place where they're fearful, and they're going to push back. So I don't have any advice other than to you know, terminate the conversation because if they're emotional and they're getting angry, they're not going to hear you anyway. Either all they're going to do is raise your blood pressure. You can't not force somebody to believe something that they think is in their best interest not to believe. Unfortunately, I do think... It's going to become more evident as, as in the coming days that it is about race and the black people that want to stay in denial are going to be in for a very painful, very rude awakening, and there's really nothing you can do about it. All you can do is get out of the line of fire, you know, and it sounds cold, but, you know, uh, just like during slavery, there were slaves that did not want to leave the plantation. Well, it's no use taking them with you. Not to say that we can escape it, but, and you know, there is no, <laughs> I don't think there's any escape from this plantation. This plantation has got to be literally dismantled. But I do think that a person that does not want to believe, you can, it's nothing you can do about it. Absolutely. I definitely um I, I've said a few times on the program, uh, really the reason this program exists is because uh, I heard Mr. Fuller said 
the bet the time that he looks forward to talking to other black people about racism is when they come to him mm-hmm. and say, "Hey, I want to talk about racism." That's the time. Hey, you can make hay then uh, when they are receptive. They are asking, "Hey, Pam, you've been writing about racism for a while. You got this blog, racismws.com." Tell me about racism. What are some things? Man, you can really make a grand impression then, and you should be prepared when you get those opportunities. But when you got someone who's saying it's not racism and, you know, Michael Brown was a thug and he should have pulled his pants up and all that, no problem. That's fine. (laughs) You just keep it moving. Uh, I I really do not make an effort to force uh, racism on someone or make them uh, believe it because it's just exactly as this listener was talking about and exactly as Pam just laid out. Frequently, you just end up with an argument and running your blood pressure up, and it just doesn't go anywhere. I found it is much easier when the person is already coming to the table saying, yes, racism is a problem, and I want to hear your thoughts about it, or this is something that I want to talk about. I, that is just much better. I don't even bring up racism voluntarily around people. I wait for them to bring it up, and then we can have that discussion. But it's just been my experience that most victims, that's just not something that they want to have open, uh, open honest dialogue about. And I, I understand that, too, is white people's fault. Um, also, and I just wanted to include this because I thought this was so crucial and just my immense regard for the, uh, the efforts of Ida B. Wells. Journalists, black journalists, played such a huge role uh, in Crusade for Justice. This is the point that Pam is talking about in terms of uh, denial uh, and how powerful that is where we just don't want to think that these white people are dedicated. They are devoted to terrorizing and killing black people. Uh, you don't have to do anything wrong, like just whatever. Uh, we are about killing, shooting, maiming, raping, abusing black people forever. Uh, she wrote in Crusade for Justice, she said, like many other persons, who had read of lynching in the South, I had accepted the idea meant to be conveyed that although lynching was irregular and contrary to law and order, unreasoning anger over the terrible crime of late rape led to the lynching that perhaps the brute deserved death anyhow and the white mob was justified in taking his life. But Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and Lee Stewart had been lynched in Memphis, one of the leading cities of the South in which no lynching had taken place before with just as much brutality as other victims of the mob, and they had committed no crime against white women. This is what opened my eyes to what lynching really was, an excuse to get rid of Negroes who were acquiring wealth and property and thus keep the race terrorized and keep the nigger down. I then began an investigation of every lynching I read about. Crusade for Justice, the legend, Ida B. Wells. Uh, I'm sure white people will probably come out uh, with some sort of narrative, you know, classifying her as a prostitute or, or some other nonsense uh, down the road as well, just like they've done with uh, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and, and many uh, Rosa Parks, many others. I'm sure she, Ellen DeGeneres will be compared to Ida B. Wells next week, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> mm. I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to get in as well. You, you have a concept in your book, and I see the people that dialed in. I'll get them uh, next up. But you have a concept in your book 
where terrorism, she just said, psychological terrorism. And when I read it, I looked at, or I read, I mean, this was published a while ago, but just looking at all of the events where you've got, in my opinion, snuff flicks of Eric Garner being choked to death, Tamir Rice shot and killed, John Crawford III shot and killed, Marlene Pinnock beaten down uh, on the freeway, Dr. Ursula Orr body slammed for allegedly jaywalking uh, in Arizona, Kamitra Barber, black mom pulled out of her vehicle at gunpoint with her children in the car uh, because they made the wrong stop and, and said that, you know, she, uh, she, her car matched the description of a call that they had of someone who was driving recklessly. Uh, she didn't have any guns. She was just a black mom trying to get her children home, and she snatched out of the vehicle, slammed on the car. Her children are crying and, you know, totally terrorized. Uh, do you think, just number one, for people who haven't read, just explain what you mean when you wrote about psychological terrorism, and does that apply to what we have been witnessing for 2014? Absolutely. Uh, if you, the best weapon you can have to oppress a person is not chains and bars, it's terror. Because what terror does is eventually it destroys your will to resist but it also you start to be convinced that you deserve to be mistreated. When you look at black people's behavior collectively, what you see is a people collectively who believe they should be mistreated. Now, people might deny that, but think of how we spend our money. We spend our money with people who despise us. And I'm not talking about all white merchants. I'm talking about the places that I grew up. We would go into restaurants in neighborhoods where we couldn't live. And we would have to, there was a place in Chicago called, uh, I can't think of the name of it, Home Run Inn. And anybody that lives in Chicago that's on this phone knows what place I'm talking about. They had pizza. You could not walk in that neighborhood after dark. If you went over the Home Run Inn, you had to go over there in a car, and you had to park right outside the, (laughs) the restaurant. You better not be down the street. You better not be on the next block. You'd probably be better off going before it got real late. And you go in and get your pizza and leave. Now, a self-respecting people, and I wasn't a self-respecting person, would not have spent their money there. But because of the reign of terror that goes back 400, 500 years, you get your victims to accept that it's normal to be mistreated, that it's normal to be terrorized. You got people going to stores where you're not welcome, spending $600 on a belt, only to be accused of shoplifting. Oprah Winfrey wants to go into a store and buy, what, $35,000 purse, and they didn't want to sell it to her. I really want that purse. Please, let me have that purse. Now think about the rational or the irrationality of that. What is that really saying? That's saying that my self-respect has no value, but that purse has some value to me. So I think the, the purpose of terror of, of terrorizing us is twofold. One is to convince us, you know, to convince us that, first of all, we can't do anything about it, that this is just our lot in life, to niggerize us, you know, it's a process of niggerization. The second part is to let white people see us. See, we think that when we're mistreated, getting shot in the street and lynched, that white people are hanging their heads in shame. Oh, look, see, see, I told you it was happening. I told you we were being mistreated. See, that's the proof. No. What it shows white people is, isn't it great that you're not a nigger? 
Excuse my French. I know some people got mad about the word. I'm not calling black people niggas. I'm saying that's what the, the mindset will be amongst the, the white collective that's watching it, that no matter how they're being exploited, no matter how they're being mistreated economically, look at black people. They got it much worse. So it also serves as a, as a soothing lotion, so to speak, for the white collective, that no matter how bad it gets for them, no matter how much they're being cheated out of jobs and economic opportunities in the future, that black people have it worse. So I believe that it's an inherent part of the system. It's not going to go away. It's not going to be marched or protested or, or anything away. It's going to be there as long as the system's in place because it's a very effective tool to keep the black masses in a state of suspended animation but also to keep whites in a, in a state of suspended animation as well. And that is to think that they benefit some kind of way from black people being in the street. That's why, they show the, that's why they show the videos. That's why they show the protest. That's why they, they publicize some of the crimes. They're selective about the ones they publicize. But that's why they show it. Because think about it. They don't show anything that they don't want to show. People say, well, they're showing these protests. they got a reason to show them. They don't have to show them. What are you going to do? Are you going to call up CBS News and tell them they got to show it? They show whatever they show on television. It serves a purpose. That's what I believe. Context of white supremacy uh, again. Trojan Horse Publications. Black love is a revolutionary act. The interracial con game among some of the great counter-racist material uh, that you can check out, uh, as well as the blog racism ws.com should be linked in the description racism ws.com uh re- i'm just getting a, a quick tidbit in from black love is a revolutionary act uh this is on page uh 390 uh you write strategy eight and you have a whole list uh of suggestions things that non-white people victims of racism can do uh to counter white supremacy and this is uh strategy number 8 maintain a psychological distance from white people during times of war the military trains its soldiers to see the opposing army as less than human not for sport or entertainment but to maintain a psychological distance a toughness so the soldier will be able to kill another human being even when killing goes against his or her conscience or morality. Example, during and after slavery, black women performed domestic and maternal duties for their white slave owner or white employer. Black women nursed white babies at their breast, raised the white children, cooked the white family's food, cleaned the white family's home, and were often told they were just like one of the family. But at the end of the day, or if the black female stepped over the invisible line separating black from white, she was quickly and often severely reminded that she was still a nigger. The white family said the black female was just like family, yet they still maintained a psychological distance from her as a black person so they would be able to practice racism even if their actions are immoral, unjust, or cruel, and to maintain the system of white supremacy. 
it is mandatory to maintain a psychological distance from your enemies during times of war, or you will have no emotional or psychological defenses against them. I'll stop right there. This is again on page 390 from Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. I think white people have done a really good job through everything that's happened over the past four or five months that all this has been going on uh, at making sure that we don't have a psychological distance from white people. And what I mean is that making sure that we think that there are a significant number of good, well-meaning, not racist white people who are steaming mad about Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and all the other cases, they have done a really good job of that. Um, what, just what are your thoughts on, because I've seen a lot of white faces uh, about these many, many white people who've been in these protests and saying that they're upset about all of this and how that's impacting our ability to maintain what you recommend, psychological distance from whites. Well, you know, that, it, it's severely troubling to me, uh, these protests. First of all, if the protests worked, why are, you still, why are we still protesting 40, 50 years later? Uh, it, I don't agree with protests whatsoever. I understand the emotion behind them. I, I respect the intention. You know, the people, are, the black people that are protesting are well-meaning. I mean, they're actually not sitting at home. They're actually getting out there. They think they're doing something constructive. Uh, I respect that and that they're trying to do something. I don't believe in it. But the thing that bothers me is there's a couple things going on at these protests. The three things that I look at the most are the white people that are there, in my opinion. I've went to a protest in younger years, a couple of them, and the one thing that I do notice is the white people that were there generally had an agenda, a political agenda. They would be handing out socialist or some kind of literature, you know. Uh, so they had a political agenda. The other thing is it's a hookup place where a lot of people use these black protesters, black people are highly emotional, they're all fired up, that's kind of sexy. And I believe they come there to sexually seduce, proposition, or whatever, black people. So a lot of that is a hookup. The other thing is white people being there totally confuses and dilutes the intentions of the black people there without them even knowing it. Because then that's where the confusion comes in. And I think that's why people are saying it's not about race. It's about blah, 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 whatever. Because the white people are there. So the white people are a neutralizing factor. I believe a lot of them are plants. They either have a political agenda, a sexual agenda, or they're plants. A lot of people are being paid to be in these protests. The, there are some people that allege that in Ferguson, Missouri, that when the violence occurred, these were people who were planted there. Some of the residents there were saying they didn't even recognize the people, that they weren't from Ferguson. So I believe that these protests are staged. I believe once the white people participate, they take over. Because I know black people. And when a lot of white people come around, we pretty much pass the reins over. We start following behind them. So they're controlling the protests probably. It's just my opinion. I could be wrong. They're probably controlling the direction of it. They have their own agenda. And I think it serves a purpose, and I'm not saying every single white person there is insincere, but I don't believe the vast majority of them are there for 
to destroy it, to, to overturn the system of white supremacy. Because at the end of the day, when they leave that protest, they still expect to get the job if they go up against you for that job. They still expect to have an advantage over you if they're in a situation where you're in competition with them. They still expect to have that advantage. But I think that the most dangerous, the most horrible part of them being there is it, it neutralizes the fire in black people. It's like taking a big old bucket of cold water and throwing it on the flame. Because at that point, when you're standing next to a white person and you're talking about protesting racism, well, who are you talking about protesting racism against? I mean, who, becomes, who then becomes the visible problem? You don't know who the problem is anymore. With that white person standing next to you, because you thought it was about racism, now you're starting to question it. That's the intent of it. That's why they show them on television. They keep showing the cameras of these white people laying on the floor, laying on the ground, and you know, marching up and down. And then at the end of the day, the black people watching the TV, what do they say? It's not about racism. Well, that was the whole point of it. So I think, uh, like I had, I, I was uh, with a couple of, this was like uh, last year, me and several people decided we were going to get together and we were going to have like a little meeting, you know, political meeting or something. And one of the guys had some white friends and he wanted to invite them. And so we said No. Because as soon as white people get in the mix, black people change. Black people start becoming passive. Black people become reluctant to speak. All of a sudden, now it's about appeasing white people. See, white people, they know what they're doing. And I'm not even sure that the white people at the protest on some subconscious level are aware that they are diffusing the situation, that they are also, uh, uh, what would be the right word? that they are basically in, in, in enabling the system to continue. I think there are white people who are refined racist, who don't particularly care for the unsavory elements of racism, like the lynchings and the, and the, the obvious brutality. And, and some don't, you know, that's not, that's not the way they practice it. So some are offended by the overt brutality of it. But I haven't met a single one yet that wants to get rid of the system. So I don't see any point and marching side by side, because what is going to change? Nothing. What has changed? Nothing. That's just the way I feel. I mean, it, it just seems to me that I just think it's a big mistake. I think it's uh, staged. I think a lot of these rallies and protests are staged, and I think the black people participating in them are going to walk away totally confused and maybe have a new boyfriend or girlfriend to boot. <laughs> uh, white friend uh, I said that I think this would be the second time I get this in this week those two words that man that I hope anyone listening to this program I hope that is like nails on a chalkboard like oof, those two words should never <laughs> be followed by one another you should never hear the word white followed by the word friend like woof Oh, uh, yes. Can I add something? Yes, ma'am. Can I add something yes, real quick yes, on, on the heels of what you said? The best way to, to drive that point home is we have to change the way we treat each other because what some black people will tell you is white people treat them better than black people do, and you hear that all the time. So I would say to all these people out here who want to see the end to white supremacy, the first thing, the best thing you can do is change what you do. You can't change anybody else. Change what you do. We have to start treating each other better 
the men have to start treating the women better. The women have to start treating the men better. The women have to treat each other better. And the men have to treat each other better. Because all we're doing, if we're talking this game and got this rhetoric, but we are still mistreating each other, then you should just go home and watch some television. Because what you've just done has totally neutralized anything that you could say. And this is the thing that bothers me the most is the rhetoric. But the behavior doesn't change. We're still not treating each other correctly. I'm talking about those of us who are less confused. We're still not treating each other better. And I'm not saying that I don't. I'm simply saying that that's the thing that will make white friends unnecessary. You know, that's the thing that will help to neutralize the desire to step outside the community is if we treat each other better. Now, I know that that may be a far-fetched idea, but as individual people, we can be more respectful toward each other. We can be kinder toward each other. Those of us who say we're less confused, those of us who want to be less confused, you know, and I know sometimes it's hard to be nice to black people, <laughs> depending on the person that you meet. I'm just saying that we have to change what we do if we want other people to change what they do. Well said. Well said. <laughs> I think, uh, again, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, I think she says uh, pretty frequently, I don't know if she says it every time, but uh, she has said it a lot on this program. It is an exercise in black mental health to refrain from squabbling with arguing with other black people. That's something simple. Again, another one. You don't have to get all rowdy and white devil crap. Hey, <laughs> I am going to do my best to be patient, courteous with other black people. Uh, before I hit the uh, callers, just in that same vein in terms of having a psychological distance, because um, I talk about all the time uh, not empathizing with whites. I think they, if nothing else, in my opinion, 2014 has made it abundantly clear that white people do not empathize with black people, uh, whether uh, it's the, the song that came out this week where a white man was mocking the death of Michael Brown Jr., uh, whether it's uh, them fundraising and getting a half million dollars at least for Darren Wilson, whether it was the whites that were on camera mocking the choking death of Eric Gardner. I mean, it has been a plethora uh, of examples. Uh, they fundraised for Daniel Holtzclaw, too. He got uh, about $10,000 in a couple of days. This is a uh, racist suspect uh, enforcement official who has been charged with sexually terrorizing 13 black females, and they fundraised for him, too. White people make it abundantly clear that they do not empathize with black people ever under any circumstances. That being said, I think we should take the same stance. So we do not empathize with white people because we are trained to identify with white identification. Terms right in the book. We are trained to identify and sympathize and seek that white validation, soothing lotion from whites, and we really need to get away from that. Uh, I just wanted to read this uh, report really quick, get your thoughts, and then I'll, I'll hit the folks that called in. Uh, I'd said I thought the uh, shootings that took place in New York City this past weekend, I thought that was going to have just – a, a massive impact on how people were talking about all of these events and just shifting what people were saying and how they were responding to everything. And I think that has been the case. Uh, this report, this is at uh, bostonmagazine.com. 
Brandeis student receives threats for tweets about New York City police shooting. Uh, this is a black female. Her name is Khadija Lynch. I'm um, just reading from the report. It says a Brandeis University student has received death threats from people across the country after she posted a series of tweets in response to the killings of two New York City police officers in Brooklyn on Saturday. Khadija Lynch, a student at the school, deleted her Twitter account in response to the onslaught of racist and threatening remarks directed toward her after Brandeis senior Daniel Mao wrote a story for the conservative website Truth Revolt that included tweets sent out by Lynch. She wrote, I have no sympathy for NYPD officers who were murdered today. Uh, Miles' story about Lynch, which included other posts she made on social media prior to Saturday's grisly murders, racked up a whopping 83,000 likes on Truth Revolt's website and quickly led to the creation of a Facebook group calling for Lynch to be expelled from the school. The group named Expel Khadija Lynch from Brandeis has more than 200 members, some of which are from the Waltman School, according to the page. People both supporting and deriding Lynch for her comments on the police shootings have been arguing about the sequence of events since Miles' article went public. I will stop there. Again, this is a black female uh, who tweeted all this. I'm hoping, trying to see if we can get her uh, on the program, but I know she's been deluged with a lot of threats and what have you. Uh, do you, any thoughts uh, on this or how people have responded to the shooting uh, in New York? Well, I, I can't have to say I'm, I'm not surprised that uh, you know, in regarding the shooting, the, the shooting of the police officers, I just find it very odd. I mean, and I'm, I'm not real up on the details, but I was under the impression that this this black uh, male who did the shooting traveled at least four hours to go to New York to shoot. Uh, be in, in response to his anger over white police officers killing black people, and in the process he kills two non-white people, and then he kills himself. I don't buy it. I can't say it didn't happen that way. I just don't buy it. It's something about it just doesn't ring right with me. Um, it seemed to me if I traveled that far to try to find somebody to shoot, I would pretty much know what they, you know, what, you know, I mean, I would, I would definitely go after the target that I came after. Uh, I find it very odd that when these situations happen that the people are, they die before they have a chance to talk. And also think about it, it would be very easy to stage something like that, to find a person that had some kind of recorded mental illness problems and to set the stage with that. I found it very odd that, that the two officers were not white officers, which makes me think, well, they didn't really want to kill anybody white. So they just targeted these two, you know, they picked these two guys. I think personally the thing could be staged. I could be, I could be wrong, though. But it just... I would say a lot of what we're looking at is staged. And the one thing that, uh, that I found that was very telling and confirms what I believe all along is that the, the focus shifted away from all these black people being killed by police officers to now black people being the victimizers instead of the victims. And if you notice that no matter what happens in the white supremacy system, whenever there's a conflict between a black person, as a matter of fact, i got an axiom in my book, and I'm going to uh, find it. Here it is. It's among the 13 axioms of racism and white supremacy. It's axiom number six. 
and I'll just read it. It's pretty short. The black victim equals a victimless crime theory. A black person in a conflict with a white person or white system cannot be the victim in a white supremacy system. The black individual is always at fault, regardless of who initiated the conflict or what facts or evidence are present. So they shifted the focus away from all these black people being victimized by police to black people victimizing police. So they just made that sleight of hand, once again, that white people are the victims. They, I even had read some reports where they made it sound like the two police officers were white policemen shot. And it turns out they were non-white, white men. So I just find that it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of deception going on out here. And uh, it's hard to know what's true or not, but I would tell you it's, uh, I believe most of this is, I believe these protests, I believe this, Shooting of the officers, I believe that it's all some kind of political agenda. I believe it could be staged. And um, I would caution people to keep in mind that you're in a system, and the system is designed in such a way to maintain itself. And they have no compunctions about killing people. They have no compunctions about lying. They have no compunctions about falsified video, no compunctions about framing, no compunctions about anything. So I would say, you know, take everything you see in the mainstream media with a grain of salt. Matter of fact, a barrel of salt. Well said. Well said. Um, before I hit the, the callers, I just I read this. Uh, it was in the New York Times today where they were talking about uh, black enforcement officers. Uh, and the article's titled, At Home and Work, Black Officers on Defensive. Uh, and it was talking about them uh, basically having divided loyalties uh, because they are supposed to uh, be loyal to their fellow officers, many of them being white, and then because they're black, they go home and they're around their black friends and family members, and they're saying, man, it's racism, and these officers are out to get us, and that's basically what it was about. Uh, but the thing that I thought was, was interesting, uh, it got to the end, and they were uh, talking to this is a, a black male, uh, Sergeant, uh, his name is Sergeant Wilson. Uh, his... Uh, I'll just read what it says. This is a few days after the announcement of the grand jury's decision in the Michael Brown case. Sergeant Darren R. Wilson said he was getting ready with other officers to begin their patrols in St. Louis when an unexpected visitor arrived. Now, Darren R. Wilson, he's a black male officer in St. Louis. It was Jeff Rorter, and people remember him, Jeff Rorter. He was one of the white officers who uh, he had been working to support Darren Wilson, and he also came out when some of the St. Louis Rams players, when they did the hands up, don't shoot. Uh, move before the beginning of the football game. He was one of the whites who came out and was like, oh, my God, this is, you know, they owe us an apology. I can't believe, you know, these disrespectful players would do this. Uh, so it was Jeff Rorter, uh, the head of the St. Louis Police Officers Association, a group that Sergeant Wilson has not always agreed with. Sergeant Wilson is the president of the Ethical Society of Police, a separate labor organization made up mostly of black officers. Mr. Rorter told the group that the white that white officer Wilson wanted to thank them for their support during the investigation of Michael Brown's shooting. Sergeant Wilson stood silent and slack-jawed. This is the black male. Mr. Rorter spoke as if we were working for Officer Darren Wilson, the sergeant said. We were working to keep the community safe. Other black officers in the room had similar blank expressions. Sergeant Wilson recalled and stared at him. He felt as though they were asking him, how are you going to respond? 
Sergeant Wilson said, are you going to just let this character stand up and humiliate us like this? He said, I felt helpless. That ran. That is the end of this article. I thought that was the most important part. That is the system of white supremacy. But you can read that. That was in uh, the New York Times, I think, today. If not, you can just read it online. I posted it on Facebook and everything. Uh, the folks – oh, did you, did you have something you wanted to get in? Or? Uh, I just wanted to say I read a, a similar article – well, an article about the police officers who said they were just as worried about what – you know, when they take their uniform off, they're subject to the same kind of treatment as any other black person. So uh, – yeah. No, I didn't have anything else to add. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> that is white supremacy. Uh, the person that dialed in from a block number, did you have a question for Pam? Your line should be open. Yes. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus and Justice, for the program today. Good evening to everyone here today. Uh, this is my university to learn how racism, white supremacy operates. I am still learning. Um, white people have no intention on granting black people the rights of justice that white people take for granted every day. I believe that black people's behavior is a demonstration of training and conditioning by white people, i.e. racism, white supremacy. White people's constant intervention into affairs of black people is for the purpose of refining racism, white supremacy, and their practices. Uh, I am finding myself having to having fewer discussions with family and friends because of their denial of racism, white supremacy. I'm finding myself doing other things absent of family and friends that bring me joy, uh, and also keeping a psychological distance from black people and most definitely white people. What is Pam's experience, does she have similar experiences like that? And thanks, Pam, for being on the show. Thank you for calling in. You know, you sound like me. (laughs) When you were saying uh, you found things that you engage in that bring you some satisfaction absent being with people that you know, and I found that this, 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 you know, when you uh, be, you know, make the attempt to become less confused, you are going to find yourself alienated because you're going to be surrounded by people who are, you feel are more confused and who have no desire to even, you know, open themselves up to understanding better what's going on around them. So it is very alienating. I I feel you. Um, I don't have a solution for it. I think it's just an unfortunate part of becoming more aware of what racism is. It's just, uh, it's just one of the prices that, that you pay. But the one thing I will say that's good about it is, for me personally, I feel like mentally I've become stronger. I could be delusional, but that's what I feel. I feel like mentally I'm stronger. I feel that a lot of things I didn't understand, I understand. I feel like I put myself in fewer situations that compromise me. I mean, I'm always going to be compromised but I'm not going to be as quick to volunteer to put myself in situations where I know I'm going to be mistreated, at least the situations I can control. So I feel as though I'm acting more in some form of self-respect 
You know, I, I feel stronger. I think that's the thing is when you embrace what you know to be true, when you embrace the truths that are in front of you, you're going to become stronger. So that's the benefit of it is you can become stronger and you can also move toward more constructive activity. And another sad benefit is a lot of the things that you thought were important, they're not important anymore. Having designer clothes, having fancy cars, uh, having to be seen in certain restaurants, a lot of the things that waste your money, you're going to find that they don't really have that much meaning to you anymore. So there's a financial benefit as well. But, yeah, I totally – I mean, there's a lot of good that comes along with it, but I think dealing with people is, is where it becomes difficult, particularly when you have people who have – are involved or sexually involved or married to white people. It really can become real, real tricky. But I, I, to, I understand what you're saying. Just keep in mind that there are good things about it too. And I do want to say I uh, agree with your commentary on the opening of the show, absolutely, and that you are absolutely right in your assessment of racism, white supremacy. Another question I do have for you is, and this is my belief, is that I believe, and this comes from, I think, some of what Norm Stamper, the police officer, said, that I believe that white people become police officers to get a pass to practice racism, white supremacy. What's your thought on that? Oh, I think uh, in Chicago, I can speak for that, a lot of the police officers, not all of them, a lot of the police officers are people that they knew had psychological problems. And I think that there are a certain number of police officers who seek power, period. They, for whatever reason, they want to have power over people. But absolutely, the the police departments are infiltrated with uh, people who are openly racist. And I think that the history of the police department, based on what I understand it to be, is that has always been a function of policing in the, in the United States, is to terrorize non-white people. That's just another form of suppressing and niggerization of, of people of color. And the police are basically like the use as the foot soldiers for the, for the people in power. So I think it's built into the police system and the court system. You know, they go hand in hand. And so, yeah, a lot of people do join the police force, I believe, to, to practice racism and get, you know, with a badge and a gun. But I personally don't believe every single police officer uh, is like that. Not even the white officers, I don't believe they consciously necessarily do that. Oh, I'm going to go in there and do that. But I think the whole purpose of the police force is to, to work on behalf of the, of the people in power, the white supremacy system itself. One final question. Um, why do black people expect white people to provide black people with justice when there is no historical evidence to support it? You know, there's a, a lot of psychological things. Uh, I don't know if you've um, – I think when you got a people – see, they deliberately made us dependent on them completely. I mean, uh, any signs of black, and black people trying to become self-sufficient were squashed. Even the whole integration thing wasn't our idea. Uh, from what I understand, a lot of the people that fought uh, against school you know, against the school system, the segregated schools, they didn't want integrated schools. They just wanted to have equal money and resources for black schools. So I think um, uh, just a lot of it has to do with just 
black people just being so dependent. It's almost like if you could look at a parent and a child, and the child is totally dependent on the parent. Well, the child knows on some level, subconscious or whatever, that they need that parent. So they got to, whatever they need from that parent, they've got to look to that parent to get food, clothing, shelter. So I think black people are in such a dependent position that we have to believe that white people are going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves because they have so much power over us. Um, You know, it's just the byproduct. And then you have uh, the Stockholm Syndrome. And if you never heard of it, I would suggest, you know, just Googling it. You know, when you have people that are oppressed under oppressed conditions, they start to believe they can't get out from under that oppression. They start to identify with their oppressors. The Stockholm uh, Syndrome was named after, I think it was some kind of bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, and the bank robbers kept the people hostage, I think, for several days. And at the end of those several days, or during those several days, the hostages started to identify with the with their uh, captors because the captors had power of life and death over them. So if you take that Stockholm Syndrome, which lasted several days, and multiply that times, a, what, a thousand, that's a thousand-fold effect of the Stockholm Syndrome upon the minds of black people. I believe personally that if we woke up tomorrow and black people were totally self-sufficient, we could get our own food, water, utilities, whatever it is we needed, I believe we would shake off a lot of this. But I think as long as we're super dependent, we're going to keep looking to black, white people as the parent because that's really what they serve as in this society. We are the children and they're the adults. Thank you, Pam, for being on the program. Thank you, well, thank for, you for listening. Your assessment and thank you for your information. No further You're questions. Uh, the uh, M1. Did you have a question for Pam? Your line should be open. All right. Good evening, everyone. Uh, good evening. Yeah, being Pam, it's been a while. Uh, <laughs> the, the comment you and Gus made about black police officers, if you want to see that, that, if you want to see what you say to come true to life, do some research on a case me and Gus has discussed several times. The case of Detective Joseph Walker, in New Jersey police officer, and what he went through for shooting an unarmed white racist that threatened him. Just study that case. What city now, was that? It happened in Maryland. I forget what particular city, but mm-hmm. it was uh, Detective Walker was an off-duty cop who, in a road rage incident, found himself having to shoot an unarmed white racist who threatened him. Mm-hmm. And all I'm going to say is they basically tried to they basically tried to legally hang this man. Mm-hmm. So just read that. But mm-hmm. my main point was even with these TV programs, have you noticed the duality or more the duality? Uh, for instance, there's, I believe, the idea that for black people, 
black relationships aren't to be promoted. Mm -hmm. So for black females, you should be with a white guy. Mm -hmm. And for black males, you should be with a white female. But if you look at the show with black females and white males, Scandal, uh, Jane Virgin, etc. These shows, Sleepy Hollow, these shows tend to have the Flash, these shows tend to have uh, couples, black females and white males, in nice lengthy relationships. Mm-hmm. Now on the other hand, when it's a black male and a white female or a non-black female, the black guy will die and a non-white guy will die within two episodes. You can see this in Homeland, State of Affairs, Jane the Virgin, even House of Lies. Don Cheeto isn't killed after he tells his white secretary he loves her. She just rats him out to the FBI where they take his property, his money, and everything, and he's faced a long prison term. Mm -hmm. So you have that, whereas on the one hand, people want to promote these relationships, but they still want to say it's, it's not, they still want to say for black males, this is what's going to happen to you if you pursue this. Yeah, I, I think a, a lot of the imagery uh, often portrays black males as less stable, less mature. I mean, when you look at the commercials, if you look at the at the imagery of black males, I, I think a lot, and, and this is kind of, sometimes I wonder, but I really think that, yes, the system is trying to destroy both of us, but I think it comes after black men in a totally, in a different way than it comes after black women. It comes after black men. I think it's important when you're in a war, you have to totally disable the men. You have to turn them, in this particular war, you have to turn the black male into a non-man. He cannot be a man. That means he can't be stable. That means he can't be trustworthy. And so when you look at it, a lot of times the black male is portrayed as immature, as unstable, as childlike. When you look at most of the roles on TV, he's acting silly, just constant silliness. You know, whatever the situation is, he's got to be a jokester. He's got to be a clown. Uh, That's the times they don't put him in a dress. So I think there's a lot of effort to totally destroy the masculinity, the heterosexuality, and the ability of black men to get off their knees. That is crucial for the white supremacy system. The black man must be disabled. He cannot be someone that people respect. Unless, of course, he's getting ready to die because he's trying to save a white person. But he, you know, it's just something in special aimed at black men. Regarding black women, the black women, given that women serve such an important role of civilizing the nation and raising and instilling values in the children, it is important for a different reason to destroy black women's sense of morality, sense of self-respect, sense of value, because when you destroy us, you destroy the men. When you destroy the men, you destroy the women. 
I just think they come at us differently. And many times I've seen commercials where the black woman will be the responsible one and the black man will be the childish one. And I think the reason they do that is to create resentment toward black women, that black women are somehow unfriendly, unsupportive, controlling, pushing him around. See, it's all about keeping us focused away from the real problem and focusing on each other. So I think a lot of this scandal, these imageries of black women sexing black men, is meant to be look like a betrayal because men have a tendency to look at the women as their property, as somebody representative of their status. And when, when women are shown as having no status, then the men's self-esteem becomes impacted. See, it's all about using us against each other. And what I find troubling is that many of us are buying into it. We're blaming each other. There's a lot of anti-black sentiment out here toward black women. And I think that if the men understood that by engaging in that, you are increasing the odds that you will remain in that condition that you're in. So they just create a lot of hostility and confusion and turning us against each other. And if, if we continue to fall for it, we're not going to make any progress at all to getting rid of this system. But I just find that they come after the men a little differently. You know, it's a different, because men are different. They go after men in a different way than they go after women. The drive to homosexualize. See, I don't think they care if black women are homosexuals or not. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's just collateral damage. But it's important to homosexualize the black man. That's real important. That's what I think. No, 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 I, I agree. And, uh, oh, and uh, one last point. Uh, I'm sure you've seen those two, uh, quote-unquote, Cheerio commercials with the, quote-unquote, black husband, white wife, mm. and a little girl. Mm. I saw a little, I, I saw yeah. a little bit of yeah. Now, uh, again, not that we're condoning the coupling, but don't you think for a breakfast commercial that has got to be the most disjointed family you've ever seen? I mean, there is no kind of cohesiveness and and togetherness in these commercials. The The parents are separate from each other. One, they're not loving I mean, they talk nice, but they're just distant. Whereas every other breakfast commercial I've seen, everyone's happy, they're all together. Mm-hmm. And you just don't get that with this commercial. So even with this quote-unquote breakthrough, you're still being told that this isn't really the way to go. Yeah. Well, they can't make it look normal because I don't think their agenda is to make it normal. I think that the agenda is to create the confusion between black men and women about what they, should, what they mean to each other and what they should be. So I think that, you know, the drive is never to normalize black people, no matter what they're doing. They can be with a white person, and it's going to be an abnormal situation. So even when they show us together, you know, in these interracial things, there's something always bizarre going on. And some, you know, it's not because you know they don't they don't want us to appear to be normal people. And that's my problem with the imagery I see. 
in commercials, TV shows, and movies, no matter what it is, there's always some element of caricature. There's always something there that our humanity is not, not complete. But I don't think that their goal is to make us completely human, at least in appearance. So I think the whole thing was to put that message out there, see, Look at these. Look at this. You know, these white people don't want to be with each other. You know, this. You know, this. You know, just to put that out there, plant that seed of look. This is the kind of family you could have. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they don't think they have to be real sophisticated. Maybe they just have to put the the picture out there. You know, uh, but you, they seldom show a black family. They don't show black women and black men together very seldom with their children. And they've even got brown-skinned people being with biracial-looking children. And I don't know the right word. With children, they have a white parent. You know? And most of the commercials I see now, the children are, are children with white parents anyway and a black parent. So I, I, I think that's the danger of it is we're seeing all this imagery, and, and it's, it's, it's not natural what we're looking at because it's not you know, it's not supposed to be natural. It's just supposed to twist your mind one way or the other. Uh, anyone else can speak. Thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. Right on, M1. Um, <clears throat> just I quickly wanted to get in. I think Pam touched on this <clears throat> towards the tail end of her uh, commentary right there. Just um, I don't, I, again, reading writing way more important than watching television not that i'm advocating it you know watching any of these programs but i have seen two episodes of scandal uh and i do watch uh how to get away with murder um there are black females with white men in both of those shows uh as well as black males with uh white females uh in both of those shows uh in my opinion the as Pam was saying, where the black people are still not presented as human beings, it's, it's glaring, uh, in my opinion. It's, in my opinion, I think whites have done a really good job where they can package the same racist filth, but they have just gotten really good at being able to package it so that we don't recognize it as, oh, this is just the same old racist gutter slop that they have been producing and the way that they have been degrading and depicting us for years. Uh, like with Scandal, Carrie Washington is not his wife. She mm-hmm. is the whore. And I'm saying that because she says that uh, on the show. That was the first episode that I saw from season three. And this is how the episode begins, where they have just had uh, sexual intercourse. It's obvious because they're getting dressed in the bedroom and they're having an argument. And he's upset because she's having sex with a different white man. He's feeling, you know, jaded about all of this. And she says uh, that I had to do this. I had to get uh, a relationship of my own because I was tired of being seen as your whore. That's what she says uh, in the show. And that's the same way that they have depicted black females forever, hypersexualized whores who certainly can't be raped, even though we know that's the whole history of white men in this area of the world. Dr. Angelo said that. Uh, but, of course, they can't be raped because they just are oversexed. They just can't have enough. She's got to be a whore. It's the same presentation, and I, you see that in How to Get Away with Murder as well with Viola Davis. She is married to the white man in this show, but she's having an affair. He's having an affair. Uh, he ends up being killed. Uh, I mean, it's just the same. And, and the scene, I was going to even play the sound clip, but I won't do it, but they have that scene where this is her husband is literally strangling her and says, you wow. disgusting slut, 
Uh, yep. The only reason that I got with you is because I knew I could have all kinds of kinky sex uh, and wow. things that I would be disgraced to tell anybody about. I knew I could do that with you. That's the only reason that I got with you. You make me sick as he's strangling her. And wow. so I said, you would think, oh, she's an attorney. Viola Davis' care. She's an attorney. She's mm. powerful. She's a professor. At a co- no, she is a whore. She is a bad wench. That is the same presentation that they have been giving us forever. It's always, always, always monster's ball. That is the way that we're supposed to view you. Uh, and I just, I see that all the time in programs that people will swear up and down that this is, this is progress. This is working right. against racism. No, they have just refined the same white supremacist right. filth uh, and given it to you. And it's there with the black males when they're with white females as well, because in that same show, How to Get Away with Murder, they have a black law student who is in a sexual relationship with a white dropout drug addict accused murderer. But they're in a relationship like that's that's balanced. A black law student is supposed to be with this chick who just got out, literally just got out of jail. Wow. But that is balanced, right? She is an accused murderer on trial. She could be facing the death penalty or whatever, but hey. This is who you can be with, and this will be equal. That's what I mean. I think it's, it's always there, and I think we just we miss that. And I think it goes back to what Pam was saying about that white identification and white validation, that we miss all of that, just, hey, that I'm with a white person. Wow, this is progress. They see us as, as people, and they'd be willing to be in bed with us. And it's, No, <laughs> they have been in bed with us for a long time. They still see us as niggers and treat us accordingly at all times. Just wanted to add my, my two cents on that. Um, yep. Absolutely. I mean, you you look at it; it's it's the imagery is the same. And I've watched this have play out over multiple movies made in the last three years, uh, maybe five years. And the black female is pursuing the white male. She is the whore. She is the whore. She is the whore. And even with the black male, he is dealing with white females in a way that degrades him. You know. Um, it's just really something. It's just it's very sad because um, we look at this like you were saying, and we think that just having black and white people on the screen that somehow this is some kind of breakthrough. But have I keep tell I say this to people all the time: black people having sex with white people, it ain't nothing new. Are you serious? Look around you at the skin color. Look at the different skin tones throughout the black community. Sex with white people is nothing new. You're not doing anything special. You're not doing anything revolutionary. You're not doing anything new. The only difference is you might be able to go to the courthouse and sign the same sheet of paper saying you're married. But nothing is new. You're not doing nothing brand new by being with a white person sexually. In a racial con game third publication, the interracial con game. She covers that in detail. Uh, the person, the person that Oh, wait, 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 oh, wait. Okay, I'm sorry. I just wanted to say this before I forgot. Did you hear about the policeman that shot, uh, that one of the policemen, the one in, involved in the, in the chokehold of the murder of Eric Gardner, he had been accused of sexually molesting black men. Wow. So that I tell people there's always a sexual cycle there's a sexual cycle element to racism. Racism and sex go hand in hand. I just wanted to, to mention that. Absolutely. He had been accused by several black males of molesting them. 
touching them inappropriately in a genital area. Absolutely. I uh, had mentioned, I think Dr. Curry talked about this when he was on the program in August, that uh, even Eric Garner uh, himself, he had submitted many written complaints. That's the importance of writing, uh, of write, make a report. Uh, and I didn't mean to say complaint. Uh, he had made many reports that he had been mistreated by enforcement officers. And in one of the reports, he said that an officer, NYPD's finest, had accosted him in the middle of the street, pulled his pants down, and performed an anal cavity search on him in the middle of the road in front of everybody. He said this. Uh, this happened to him, so I mean exactly what she just said. And this is all detailed. Again, the interracial kind game, you can get more information, but that is standard operating procedure. Uh, the person that dialed in last four digits, uh, 4,300, wait a minute, different person from a block number. Did you have a question? Person that called in from a block number, did you have a question? Oh, yes, hello. Um, good evening, guests. Good evening, Pam. So nice to hear from you guys this evening. This is Karma Pickings. Um, about um, about um, the uh, mistreatment that, that black people do to each other, I think I had mentioned earlier that uh, a, grand, a grandbaby that I take care of engaged in some mistreatment of me because he's a Jehovah's Witness, you know, and his mother follows a bunch of white guys around. And um, so, you know, we were hauling lumber, and he says, no, I don't think I'm going to help you haul lumber. And I said, oh, really? Call your family. Tell them to come pick you up right away. So, which is, you know, regrettable, but, you know, it's just, I just don't think, no matter how torn he is, that a, a young black male should be allowed to mistreat a female elder under any circumstances. So anyway, he, he's back for the holidays. And, uh, and uh, you know, I said about making him just, you know, feel yummy and warm and making him breakfast and everything. And it's just he's as happy as a, he's as happy as a, as, as a clam. But, um, but he says, I want to be helpful. I want to be helpful. So he's not giving me any of that Jehovah Witnesses crap. And uh, he even learned how to use... Uh, um, a power drill driver, and, uh, you know, we're building shells and things. So I think that women should stand firm, and no matter what the outside influences are of these white people, do not let them raise your young men to mistreat you, because that's an outside influence. I mean, what 10-year-old tells a 50-something-year-old elder, no, I don't think I'm going to help you haul that. So... I mean that's just that's just nothing but white people, just white people. And um, another thing I wanted to mention is um, in my counter racism that I'm learning how to do it better. I had a book in the shed called Black and Selma, and it's a biography about the first attorney in Selma, Alabama. Um, uh, Selma, Alabama. His name is J. L. Chestnut, and I can recommend it highly. It was so good. I actually sat down and wrote the man a letter thanking him for putting his biography out. Um, and um, the other thing I wanted to say is uh, white people lie about everything. They lie about everything. And I find it very helpful in my counter-racism to start lying about everything, too. I tell people all over the county that, um, do you want this office? I can get you this office. You want this job? I can get you this job. You want to do this? You don't need that. I, I just... I just pump black people up right and left, and then I get busy. I tell them, don't worry about it. We got it next time. But 
white people tell us lies about ourselves and we and we believe them so I think that we, we should start using lies. I don't think we have to be the honorable dupe all the time while they just run circles around us with their lies. I think we ought to make use of lying, even though it's against our nature. And can I say one last thing? I, I, was, I was at some cousins, and uh, <laughs> I was eating. They were eating raccoon. And and so, you know, they were out there grilling the raccoon. And so, you know, I'm eating a raccoon because, you know, they want to eat it. But I looked down, and they had another raccoon in the cage by the barbecue grill. And I'm like, he was completely stressed out. This raccoon was rubbing its little paws together. He was rubbing his eyes. I swear to God, he looked like he made a thing where I don't know what's going to go on. I know that's the relative. Mm. They're eating my relative. I'm next. And you could feel the stress coming off this raccoon. Mm. And I'm like, God, these guys are so mean. But the only other time I've felt that kind of stress is I don't know what's going on. This is unacceptable cruelty. Is when I was watching a, a movie by, what do you call those nature people who always – following black people around and taking pictures of their boobs and stuff. What do you call it? National Geographic. That's it. National Geographic. I was watching that one time, and it was an ant farm. And they had a spider that was disguised, kind of like an ant. But if you look at it, you can tell it didn't look exactly like the ants. But it was in the nursery. And it was eating all the baby ants. And you could see the other little worker ants, and, and I could feel the stress coming off them because they know these little babies are the babies are disappearing, they're being eating. But I said the thing is, is they cannot acknowledge what's freaking them out is that there's another ant killing the babies. They they can't acknowledge that there's another ant eating the babies. And I think that's what we're up against with white people. We can't seem to quite acknowledge how inhumane they are. That these people who look like us and sound like us and emulate us, then maybe they're not just like us. You know, because who kills the babies? Yeah. So, anyway, those are some observations I had. And thank you so much for having the show tonight. Thank you for, you know, that's just interesting. Well, thank you for for listening and for calling in. I think that's the interesting point you made is that I think part of the black denial is the black disbelief that anybody could be so cruel. And I think that that's a normal reaction to severe cruelty. And I think people try to rationalize it in some way because they can't relate to it. And I think a lot of black people can't relate to this level of cruelty. I mean, we, I couldn't imagine going and shooting a 12-year-old boy. And I couldn't imagine keeping someone from working and feeding their family because they're white or green or red. I can't see getting any joy out of that. So sometimes it is hard to understand the level of cruelty. I mean, if someone lost a child, I couldn't sit there and clap with glee and make jokes online and make up songs about somebody's child being killed. I mean, it's inconceivable to me of how some of the things that they do, that they can live with doing them. So I think that's part of it is that uh, we're, we're in a state of disbelief, so we have to try to rationalize it some other kind of way. Well, maybe there was a reason they did that because, you know, because we just really can't. Uh, it's, we can't fathom the level of cruelty that, that, that is within the white population. For sure. Right on. Good to hear from uh, Karma as well. Uh, the person that dialed in last four digits, 
4300. 4300. Did you have a question? I don't want folks to get carried away with story time either because we do have a lot of folks. <laughs> I want to make sure we get uh, everybody who called in. Did you have a question? Caller at 4300. Good evening to the host, the listeners, the callers, and to Pam. It's really great hearing you. Oh, good evening. I don't have much to say, but I wanted to say one of the best ways that I try to explain racism, white supremacy to younger people or people that are confused, often asking why are these things happening. The exercise that I like to do is what is the opposite of blue? People would say red. What is the opposite of cold? People would say hot. What is the opposite of winter? And we'll say summer. Then I said, what is the opposite of white? Black. I said, so if you can understand that, then you really don't need to question why these things are happening. We have to recognize that these, are, these people are our opposite. I mean, if you look at skin coloration, if you look at phenotype, and once you say that to someone who is a little confused, and who questions why a lot of the atrocities are happening to our people, there's a silence, a pensive kind of silence, and they have to think about that for a second. So that's one of the strategies that I use when I'm trying to communicate with confused um, or younger people. Additionally, um, um, we mentioned earlier about the movie Selma. I haven't seen it. Um, I don't necessarily want to pay to see it either, but I believe that um, maybe a few of the reasons why it was even released today is because, of course, they want to keep black people in a very docile state, particularly with everything that has been transpiring um, recently. Um, but one of the things that I've been noticing as of late and then additionally, it's Christmas, and this is family time, particularly for black people. This is Jesus' day, the birth of Jesus. And they know how um, religious and Christian-like most black folk are. But one of the things that I wanted to point out that I'm noticing, it's a Hollywood trend that I'm noticing that many African actors or actors of African descent, and I mean of direct African descent, whether their parents are from Africa or whether they were born in Africa, they are starting to portray, portray historical figures or they're in roles that are historically black American or black American-centric, versus when you look at black American actors, they're typically in buffoonish, coonish comedy roles or, I mean, they're playing the whore. I mean, I think that they portray black Africans in the same light as the whorish and all that, but I feel like I'm starting to notice it more with, for example, with the Selma um, film that's out, the man that's portraying Dr. King, he's of African descent, but he's of African-British descent. Um, additionally, with 12 Years a Slave, the main characters are of African descent. Um, you have, hold on, pronouncing his name right, Ijuel, Chuatel Ijuwa, whatever his name is, and then Lupita Nyong'o. 
Mm-hmm. And um, additionally, the woman that's portraying Martin, Dr. King's wife in the film, she's actually of African descent, but she's of um, a tragic arrangement. Her father is black African, her mother is white. So I'm noticing that this is the trend that's happening now. So I don't know if, Pam, if you also realize that and if you have, like, a theory on that whole portrayal thing. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. Now, you know, um, thanks to the emails, I really hadn't really paid much attention to it, but you're absolutely right. It seems that there is... A trend now toward not employing black actors, but you know, Af- people black people born in America uh, for roles, particularly roles of importance. And I think that there is definitely some agenda behind it. I don't know if it's gang wars between black people born, but see, most of most of the uh, viewing audience doesn't even think about it or realize it. So. The only thing I can come up with really is I believe that black people who came through the process of chattel slavery have a certain, the history that we have here makes us a different kind of a target. Yes, they target black people all over the world, but I think they've got some reserves, some kind of, something special reserved for black people who came out of chattel slavery. Is it a spiritual thing as in something that goes much deeper than just money and privilege or is it a thing of where they feel they have to, um, there's a, it just seems to be a certain kind of animosity, a certain kind of, something being directed at black people born here that seems to be a little bit different than people who weren't born here. And I think there's a special concerted effort to cripple black people who were born here who came out through the process of chattel slavery. Why, I'm not sure, but I felt that for a long time that there's something about our history here that has especially targeted us for a certain kind of treatment. And uh, maybe somebody else has something that they can, you know, some other clarification. But I've just noticed that, that it seems that, uh, like even to the extent where the laws, the way the law was, you know, like a lot of people believe that black people were, that slavery, the so-called Emancipation Proclamation, made us citizens. No, it didn't. Black people who came out of slavery are still not citizens because the Dred Scott Amendment that the Supreme Court passed said that anyone who, uh, I believe what it says is, uh, no one who has been a slave or descended from a slave can ever be a citizen. And the 14th Amendment was not constitutionally ratified. The 14th Amendment allegedly overturned the Dred Scott decision, but it was not constitutionally ratified. So if it was not constitutionally ratified, then the Dred-Scott decision still stands. So it's something about the black people born here who came up through the process of slavery that there's just something different that's directed at us. So I'll just 
stop there. Maybe someone else has some other interpretation. Uh, right on. Uh, person that dialed it. Oh, this caller in Alabama. Did you have a question for Pam? Um, yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, first of all, I'd like to say um, hi to Gus and Pam, and glad to hear from you, Pam. Oh, thank um, you. Um, yeah, I, I would guess, like, I probably, you know, probably start my question about what you were saying about the fact that we would not be citizens in the United States. I kind of... I'm kind of twisted about that. Like, I don't know if I would like to be a citizen in this government. You know, um, I think it would be better. We would, I, I think we should – I just wouldn't wish that we wouldn't be killed and the, pe- the officers and sometimes the citizens who do kill us, I wish they was, you know, brought to justice. I, I, I would like to see that. But I don't think it would be a good thing if we were citizens because – I believe this whole experiment called the United States is a crime within itself. And I think if we became citizens, we would be participating in that crime of colonization and genocide. And I don't have much to say. I just want to let you know I was glad to hear from you and, you know, I'm continuing to listen and learn from you. Like I said, I look forward to hearing from you whenever I do. Okay, thank you. You know, that's a good point. I, when I speak about citizenship, and I've told, you know, whenever I express that theory to people, sometimes they look a little upset. And I say, well, you know, I'm not upset by it. Matter of fact, if it is true, then that explains a lot because only citizens have protection under the law. So to me, if it is true that we are not citizens, then that would explain our treatment. It would explain why we need a separate voting act, rights act to so-called guarantee our voting. It would explain why we need the civil rights acts. People who are citizens don't require separate legislation to be treated the same as everybody else. And when you look at what an act is, an act is not a law because it's not constitutional. There's a whole lot of things involved with it, but I'll just say that I agree with you. I don't think that the goal is to be a citizen. I think the goal is to understand what your real condition is under a system of white supremacy. And to me, being a citizen will not enhance my understanding of that. I have no desire to, uh, to embrace anything else that's not true because I've been lied to enough. So um, I just think it's interesting that it seems that something peculiar, uh, that our treatment as black people who were born here, and particularly those of us who were descended from slaves, it's just very something very peculiar about the depth and level of mistreatment that we experience. I don't um, know. Could I get one more question? Man, I forgot I had one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think by um, kind of promoting in um, you know white white and you know descendants of Africans um, slaves? By promoting relationships between the white, the races, white—I mean, the whites and the descendants of slaves—do you think they could be um, trying to, like, what I would say, erase us through the bedroom? You know, um, genetic. Well, I say genetic homicide. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, 
you know, water us down, have all of us become octrons and quadrons and whatever the word is, just wipe us out where we all become white and really it wouldn't be no, like it really wouldn't be no Africans here left who descended from slaves because we all be white, say, in the next 500 to 600 years. And when the ones who are white, who know that they do come from the people who exist today is known as African-Americans, when they do try to speak out on it, they'll be like, hey, shut up. You ain't no real black person. You ain't a real African-American anyway. This this question. Well, you know what? I think it definitely is a, it's a political. I mean, there's definitely uh, some agenda. I think part of the agenda is to create division between black people so we can't unify. I think another part of it is white people trying to restore the genetics because they're dying out, and the genetics are literally unraveling. And so I believe they're trying to get that stronger genotype into their bloodline because over, over certain periods, of, you know, a black, say a black person and a white person have a child, there is that chance that that child will marry white, and then that black genotype won't be visible. It will still be there, but it will be genetically stronger. I also think part of it is to destroy the the melanin you know the genotype of melanated people you know to 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 uh, encourage the darkest people particularly to feel so bad about that darkness that they want to breathe themselves out of existence uh, so I think it's a lot of reasons I think it's confusion uh, they've used the skin color difference between black people as a way of dividing black people creating a lot of antagonism creating a lot of inferior uh, feelings the darker people made to feel that they're not as good or as pretty as lighter-skinned people. So that serves the purpose of just totally destabilizing uh, black people as a as a group, but also making it a, a much more difficult for us to come together and unify. Uh, it's just a lot of stuff, but I think it's it's definitely not because uh, it definitely has nothing to do with progress, and it has nothing to do with promoting something positive. What they're promoting is something that's destructive. And I don't see anything good that comes out of it other than you get human beings who you know, certainly have a right to exist. But it, it doesn't benefit the black, uh, black collective at all. I mean, there's not one single benefit for the black collective uh, by breeding with white people. There's not a single benefit, but a lot of detriments. May, may I add an opinion? Uh, can we get the last caller uh, or last couple folks to dial in, and then uh, if you want to share your thought on that, you can do so. Okay. Thank you. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, that answered your question, calling Alabama? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, it did. Cool in the gang. Uh, person that dialed in, uh, this is a different person from a block number. Uh, did you have a question for Pam? Yes, Gus and Pam, greetings to you all. This is 404. Oh, wow. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I recognize this. <laughs> Gus, how come I don't get a hello from you? Oh, <laughs> right on, right on. We had just talked on the uh, the book review. I had, uh, I've heard from her more recently than Pam, but right on. Good to hear from you. Yes, Gus, and, um, and to all the listeners on the line, um, it's the most um, interesting topic that you all are covering tonight. And Pam, I'm so glad to hear you back on the line. 
Oh, thank you. Uh, oh, you're welcome. No, what I was going to answer that question, the caller in Alabama posed the question in regards to, or no, it's not Alabama, you yourself had posed the question to the treatment that we blacks in the America that came through the Mahafa, the treatment that we received versus the other Africans that come from other parts of the, of the diaspora. And what I would chalk that up to is that when you owe somebody money, are you going to try and do that avoidance thing and try and make it seem as if though that you don't owe them and you're not going to pay them? That's the treatment that we get here. These people, they know what they owe us. They don't owe those people on the African continent as much as they owe us for what they've put our ancestors through and what they have done to us. So in order for them to play this avoidance game, they would bring in all of these other displaced people from other parts of the continent, the Caribbean, Asian, whatever, I'd advance them over us mm-hmm. so that, you know, so that they, wouldn't, they, would, they could ignore us, just kind of push that problem away and ignore it. And that's what they have done to us because the Europeans do the same thing with the Africans on the continent that they have colonized. They, they do the reverse with black people from the Americas. When we come there, we get special treatment over the Africans from the continent because they know what they owe those people and they don't owe us anything, so therefore they could afford to be nice to us, and they play those games. So that's how they do it um, back and forth, the Europeans versus the Americans here, when it comes to the different blacks from all over the place that they have done damages to. But um, what I wanted to touch on is, I'll ask you a question on this, it's in regards to this, because I've been making my rounds with my radio program, Gus. I've been calling into a few shows. And I think that I have a problem with is when I'm, I'm hearing a lot of older blacks use this word power, and they throw it around a lot, and they mislead a lot of the young people when they say that we have power. And I don't, I don't, we don't have power. I go with Amos Wilson, Dr. Amos Wilson's definition of what power is. And if you can have power in order to make somebody do something that they are not going to do on their own, and then you have the ability to back it up in order to get them to do it, which is the position that we, we are in as black people, then that is called power. And for us to try and tell people that we have power and we are going living on past things that we have done, we built the pyramids, we did all these civilizations, and we pumping up ourselves and we pumping up our ego, but then look at the condition that we are in. Our children are being killed before our eyes. Black women are being beaten down on the side of the highway, dragged out of our cars, guns pointed at us. You know, Michael Brown was shot and killed, and he laid on the ground for four and a half hours. All of the community who outnumbered these police officers, they stood back. No one jumped. These officers beat them down and did anything to them. You know, we could have handled that matter right then and there on the spot, but it wasn't done. They had, on average, maybe 12 cops out there, and they were able to contain the scene of over hundreds of people, and we didn't react to it. That is what you call power, that you could have four or five police officers there, and all of these hundreds of blacks, and we would be contained and stay behind the yellow line, and we would not do anything, even though our loved one is laying out on the ground bleed, bleeding out for four and a half hours. So Gus, as well as Pam, if you can touch on that, because we need to stop being delusional. And this is something that we have got to stop doing to ourselves, lying to ourselves, lying to our children, starting off with the fairy tales, the biblical myths, and all these other stories that we tell our children. And now that they grow up, 
with this inflated view of saying that, oh, black people are powerful people and we this and that. We're not powerful. Anytime we don't control our communities, we have somebody else, the, the oppressors are educating us, we're dependent on them for our food, our medical care, our education. That is a powerless position because we're not controlling any of our institutions. So if you can touch on that, I would greatly appreciate it, and I'll mute myself, Gus. Next time, be a bit more enthused when I call in. <laughs> did, you, did you want to touch on it first, Gus? Uh, I can. <laughs> uh, I, I am a bit uncouth. Uh, I will I will make note to be more enthused uh, when you uh call in next time 404. Um my 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 response would be uh, I was going to ask if you can when Pam after she uh gives her response I was curious as to you said you call in um you know how do they respond when you if you ask them the same question you know or if you ask them for a definition what do you mean when you say power or if you just you know give your view and allow them to respond what do they say i guess if you want to share that after pam gives her response my response i would agree i you know i think we say consistently on this broadcast the importance of us being uh honest about the position that we are in uh, i think it's been pointed out lashes many of the other callers back of the bus uh it's not white privilege it is white power. Clearly, there's an enormous power differential between the amount of power that the white collective has, even one individual white person, even if we're talking about a poor white person, they have way more power than black people. And I think Pam, uh, she talked about the illustration uh, of uh, in 2009 when President Obama, his first uh, year in office, when the situation happened with Dr. Henry Louis Gates uh, up at Harvard, that would be a cowbell too. Uh, and when he was arrested, this white officer and President Obama came out and said that, you know, this officer acted uh, stupidly and that, you know, racism, I think he used the term racial profiling at the time, has been a problem. And then he had to come out uh, and recalibrate his words and invite this often. And this is the president of the United States. He's supposed to be the most, what they say, the most powerful man in the world. That's what they say. But he has to grovel and beg this white, off, lowly white officer, not like he was the captain or the chief of the police department, he has to beg him to come to D.C. and make things right. She's, uh, Pam, you can set me straight if I'm wrong, but she said that that really showed her a lot in terms of what it means to be white and the total absence of power that we, well, I won't say total absence, but I mean we have a very limited amount of power if you put that, if you juxtapose that to the amount of power that white people wield over our lives. And I think that I know you said older uh, black people. I think when you were talking, post your question, uh, it's been my experience that I hear that from a lot of people, uh, not just older black people. I hear that from a lot of people across the board where they will, you know, say that black people, uh, that we have all kinds of power and this, that, and the other. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they have a different definition than what Dr. Amos Wilson is saying. And I'm, when I say this, it's not that I'm saying, you know, that we are – I uh, can't do anything. It's not saying, you know, lie down in the street that white people are all powerful and omniscient. I'm just saying that in order to correct that situation, we got to be honest that we are trying to get more power. We are trying to make an effort to change the imbalance of power that exists on the planet. And I think if you're serious about doing that, you got to be honest about where we are right now so that we can gauge when we're making progress and we're beginning to change that. But I mean, it's in my opinion, it is obvious if black 
black people had any power, uh, these things would not keep happening. I think first and foremost, we would be protecting our children if we had power. Just that right there tells you the pitiful position that we are in worldwide. And I would just say with the police thing, uh, it was in uh, We Will Shoot Back, Dr. Emoja's text, which I highly enjoyed, recommended. He was a guest on the program uh, where he talked about the long tradition of black self-defense, entire families being devoted and committed to defending, valuing, preserving black life, uh, that they realized that it would be suicide if they went out to attack police officers because they understood that the white collective would respond very differently, very swiftly, and with lethal vengeance against black people on the whole. doesn't matter if we, what you saw with MOVE, even though they weren't going out and killing uh, black police officers, but hey, we will burn down the entire black neighborhood if you decide you think you want to come after uh, white police officers. So I think we understand that at some level, uh, even if we do out, even if it's a hundred of us out there, if it's a thousand of us out there and 12 white officers, that the white response is something that I think most of us, we do not want to hear. Uh, we do not want that rep uh, retribution uh, on us. I think we understand that. But I totally agree. Be honest. Uh, we need to be working to get power. We are in a very pitiful power relationship with whites. Uh, I will work on being more enthusiastic next time around. Pam, uh, do you want to give your response? <laughs> Sure. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's, uh, I think it, 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 it's a disservice anytime you lie to yourself, uh, particularly when you're in a, a precarious situation, uh, life or death struggle. The first thing you've got to do is acknowledge where you are, you know, what your tools are, what the enemy has versus what you have. That's like going into a firefight and you've got a slingshot and you're telling yourself that the slingshot is as powerful as a rifle. You know, so I, I, I totally think that the first thing we have to do is admit where we are. And a lot of people feel that that's diminishing, but it's not diminishing. It's truthful. And you can't solve a problem if you won't admit that you have a problem. Uh, I think uh, I hear this term all the time, and it, and it bothers me too, all this economic power, to buy, consumer purchasing power. Where do we get the power to purchase things from? We get jobs from white people. We get money from white people. So how valuable is that consumer power when you have to get the money from somebody else? That doesn't mean you're powerless. See, it's not an it's not a, a, a either or. You don't have to. You're not powerless just because you don't have power. It just means that in that particular situation, you don't have the power that you need. Uh, I had written something in uh, the first book about power, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs. Um, you know, I talked about, you know, a lot of people think rich black entertainers and athletes have power. Of course they don't. Money's not synonymous with power. Power is not a paycheck, even a $40 million one. The person with the most power is the one who signs the check. For every black person who is paid in the millions, there are whites behind the scenes making billions. So then I, the question is, if money isn't power, what is power? Power is self-evident. Power answers to no one other than God himself. Power is the ability to determine the status quo and who sits at the top of the pecking order. Power is the ability to determine what is news and what is not. Power is controlling the financial, political, and educational institutions so you and your kind benefit. Power is the ability to control your own images and the images of those who are less powerful than you are. Power is the ability to determine who goes to jail, for what crime, and for how long. Power is the ability to vote in an election and still have that vote counted. 
So basically, it's just uh, real power means that you have control or at least some control over your situation. We don't control our environment. We don't control our food. We don't control whether we get water or not. We don't control utilities. We don't control what money represents. We don't control how much money we get. We don't control where we can spend it. I mean, we can spend it. But what I'm saying is black people collectively cannot match the power of white people collectively. So the real key for me is to first of all acknowledge and admit that and then secondly to come up with a strategy on how to combat that. But I think it's real important that you have to, just like being a, a drug addict, you can't talk about doing all these other things you want to do until you deal with the issue of where you are right now. And I think it's crucial for black people to acknowledge where we are right now so then you can build on that. But if you can't even be honest about where you are, then what kind of realistic plan can you make to do any better? Uh, if you uh, are still with us, 404, if you wanted to, um, I'm just, just curious before I hit the next callers, um, if you, you said you were calling into these different programs and you were saying, I guess raising this point about uh, power, uh, what was the response generally that you were hearing uh, when you raised this issue? Uh, what I ra- the issue that the response that I received was an older gentleman that from the civil rights era, and his response was that, well, if we pool our resources, I said potential power and actual power are not the same thing. Yes, we all have a potential to do these things. But right now we do not have it, and for you to keep going around here saying that we have all of this power misleading these people, misleading these, these children, especially this younger group who is mounting up this current resistance, and you're inflating their, their egos and giving them all of this false assumption is going to be disastrous. We have to go in with a clear head and be well aware that we are in a powerless position. It is not denigrating to anyone because I'm admitting I'm in that position myself, because we don't control our community. Anytime a child can be killed in front of you, and you can't do anything about it but go to the same judicial system and beg them to indict this officer, or take him to, to charge him with a crime, then you are powerless because you can't force the system to do what it's supposed to do. And that is what I, that is what I, I am not getting across to a lot of these people, because they want to keep in this myth about we are great pyramid builders and we did this and that, that is those pyramid builders don't exist. The people that we are here now is not the people we were two, 3,000 years ago. And that is something we've got to stop doing, living in the past on past glories of what we have done in the past. We are not those people because if we were, white supremacy wouldn't have us in such a, a vice grip. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Uh, enthusiastically agree. Um, the, it's like, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, go, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's like being in a concentration camp and telling yourself you're powerful. You're not in the concentration camp because you're bad or wrong. You're just in that situation. And until you acknowledge that you're in that situation, then you can make plans on how to get out of that camp, how to get out of that prison. And I think a lot of people, like, like 404 was saying, is they take it personally. They think it's a way, it's a put-down. 
But I think one of the most dangerous things that you see now amongst black people collectively is this runaway ego. This ego is a problem, and ego is not self-esteem. Ego is just something you tell yourself to make yourself feel good about something that more than likely isn't true. And I just think that our young people are being put in danger because they've been taught to embrace the ego and not taught to have real self-esteem. The ego will make you go up against a policeman and stick your chest in his face because you are convinced that you are equal to a white person in a white supremacy system. So you think you can approach law enforcement officers as equals. But if you knew that, if you knew better, then you would look at that law enforcement officer as a potential danger, and your whole agenda should be to get home that night in one piece. Ego will get you killed. Self-esteem will save your life. And I think we have to start training our children to embrace truth and to embrace reality and to understand that when someone has you in a bad position, that is not a condemnation of you. That's a condemnation of the racist. But you've got to also look at that racist as a dangerous person, and you don't let your ego dictate what your reaction is going to be. And our children are being taught a lot of BS that pumps up their ego, and then they go out there in the world and they get their heads smashed because they have been convinced that they are equal to white people because mama drives a Lexus. Or daddy just bought a big house. And we've got to move away from the ego because that will get you killed every day of the week. Self-respect is not lying to yourself, for sure. Uh, caller at 1184, did you have a question for Pam? 1184? Yeah. yeah. Greetings, everyone. Uh, yeah, self-respect. Yeah. Oh, Pam, you sound, uh, you sound great. You've got a great voice. <laughs> and join you being on the program. And uh, I had a question. Let me see what's the question. Uh, I wanted to make a comment about the, uh, the thing that you spoke about. About the, uh, it does seem like there's a, a particular type of uh, antagonism and um, destructive intention towards black Americans in particular in this country. I, I agree with that. And I think uh, Penn touched on that well already, what she said. And it's it it, it's like a, let me see, a guilty conscience perhaps involved in it. And a, I, well, another thing thought came to my mind is uh, I think as black Americans that we know these people better. Too, you know, and I think we can we, we know their personality and their their character and their their deceitful um, wicked ways more uh, personally, more intimately, you know. So I think because of our awareness of them, that's another reason why uh, allow other types of black people to uh, progress and without uh, hostility towards them, you know, because I, I think. Um, they're threatened by us because we know them so well. We we been, we we went through all this stuff with them and all that. So I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, I have a question I would ask is uh, uh, I had a question about uh, what, what do you think the situation? How would you characterize the situation that's going on in in Detroit? 
Oh, you're talking about like the the economic situation. Yeah, and the fact that uh, you know it's predominantly uh, black mm-hmm. population there that mm-hmm. are being um, resubjugated, so to speak, in my opinion. Yeah, I I think that Detroit being perceived as a a lot of black people, predominantly black, I think that has everything to do with how Detroit was handled. I think it was a total disenfranchisement of the black people there, of the land that they owned, of the lives that they had built. I think it was white supremacy in pristine condition. Uh, I think it's really, really telling that those people uh, were forced to give up a big percentage of their pensions and that Detroit was allowed to go bankrupt. So I think that, yes, it had everything to do with the fact that a lot of the victims were going to be black people. And I think it was also the way white supremacy functions. It likes to do things publicly to black people while it denies that it's doing it. But I think it's essential. I think it's all part of the fun of practicing white supremacy is devastating as many black people as possible and doing it in a way that's publicized where the people who are victimized can't do anything about it. I think it's a certain kind of joy that comes out of black misery, black pain, black mistreatment. They get a certain psychological joy out of doing it. So I don't think Detroit would have went down that way possibly uh, if it had not been predominantly black. But also I bet you money, if the economy survives, and that's questionable, you might eventually see a resurgence of Detroit, only black people won't be there. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be going in that type of direction, you know. Mm-hmm. They'll start bringing back industry because eventually they're going to bring back, I believe, some of the industry because they're already setting the stage for war with, these, with, with China and these other nations. So they might wind up bringing some manufacturing back to the United States. But it will not be, wherever they bring it back to, it won't be a large black population getting jobs from that manufacturing. So I don't know. Um, and when you mentioned that about, uh, about the guilty conscience, I think, uh, I don't think there is a conscience. I think it's the kind of reaction that you have when you greatly, okay, like say, for example, You've got a neighbor down the street, and you have been horrible to that neighbor. You've, you've killed a couple of their kids. You've done a lot of things. You better make sure that that neighbor never, uh, to make sure that neighbor never comes after you, you have to totally disable it. They have created the most, the largest crime against humanity was the uh, transatlantic slave trade, and they know that. And so I think there is a certain determination because it's like the crimes that they committed during the transatlantic slavery tells who they are. That's why they want to rewrite the history. That's why they want to make sure that we can never fully heal, resurrect ourselves because of the damage that was done. They've got to do everything they can to squash any attempt for us to overcome that damage. Is it because they fear retribution? I don't know. But I know whatever it is, they've got a psychological need and a practical need to make sure the descendants of slavery never fully recover. So I think they have reserved something special for us. I don't think it's that we know them better. I think it's that our existence is a testimony to who they really are. 
and they do not want to look in that mirror. We're a mirror reflection of who they really are. 400 years of slavery, even to this day, still being mistreated. It's a reflection of who they really are. And they don't want to look in that mirror and see who they really are, not because they'll feel guilty, but because it's the truth. And white supremacy is built on not telling the truth. And I think that if you greatly mistreat anyone, you've got to make sure that that person stays down. They never get back on their feet. Uh, But as far as guilt is concerned, I think it's not guilt that makes them duck and dodge. It's like, and I'm not calling anybody a roach, but have you ever gone into a house with roaches and you turn the light on? The roaches scatter, and they hide. The roaches don't hide because they feel guilty about crawling all over your food and kitchen. They hide because they don't want to be seen, because if you see what's really going on, you might kill them. You might destroy them or destroy their ability to run rampant over your kitchen when the lights are out. I look at white supremacy like that and the people that practice I'm sorry. I don't don't see them as a morally feeling guilty, so to speak. No, 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 not at all. I think it's for avoiding detection. They don't want the victims to understand what happened. They don't want the victims to understand what they're doing. So that's why they scatter and hide and try to diffuse and deflect and, and, and project and all that other stuff because main, the main weapon of white supremacy is not guns and knives and money. It's deception. So when the victims start to wake up and see what's really going on, the spiritual power kicks in. See, what the thing is is it's not even about guns and bullets and money and food. It's about the to me, the spiritual power, and I'm not talking about a church. I'm talking about there's something in the universe that always seeks balance. And when the people start to wake up, some kind of energy is going to be generated. Now, it's just my belief, and I believe they know that. So it's not even about keeping you down physically. It's about keeping you down psychologically. Because even if I lock you up in a jail, if you still know what's going on, you still know what's going on. But if I can get your mind and get you confused then I got you. So I think that when it comes to the huge debt that they owe the descendants of slaves and their ancestors, they're going to do everything they can to make sure that bill never comes due. Right, and that you never become a real threat. Um, Are you on YouTube? Me? No, I'm not on YouTube, but uh, I do have a website, and I do put, uh, uh, you know, I'm not real crazy about my voice. So doing YouTube I videos, I don't know. I don't think I want to hear myself on a YouTube video. But uh, a voice. Oh, well, thank you. I didn't say that it's to very, get a comment. You know what it is. You hear your voice on the tape recorder, and you're like, ugh, that me? I didn't give you a compliment because you want it when you have a good voice. It's uh, very clear, and it's, yeah. it's got good confidence to it. Thanks, Gus. Okay. Appreciate it. Uh, have the you next checked person out the website? Does. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, I was just going to tell them, you know, I do have a website, and you can – you know, if you want to make some suggestions on some things that could be talked about, you can do it there. RacismWS.com. RacismWS.com. Caller from a block number. Did you have a question for Pam? Uh, yeah. Uh, this is a question for Pam. Um, um, I, I just want to ask, this is touching on uh, black economics. Um, I got into a discussion with somebody online uh, a few weeks ago, and, you know, they got angry with me because they were saying that if we would pull all our money together, we could make, we could build businesses in our own community, and we could run the, the Indian and the, and the Korean 
businesses out um, if we, you know, pull all our money together. And I was trying to tell them that it, it, the, the land is owned by white people. We don't own any of that land. And if white people don't want to sell us a vacant building or whatever to start a business, it doesn't matter, you know, um, how we put our money to, together. And they were arguing with me and stuff and saying that, you know, I was a Negro and I didn't know, you know, what I was talking about. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a hard call because I've even said things like we should pool our money together, but you really went past that feeling of what we want to do as to what we can do. And I do think that if we tried to do it, the white supremacy system, a.k.a. white people, would try to throw a monkey wrench in it. Does that yeah. mean we shouldn't try? No. But I think the problem with trying to do something like that is being naive about what you're going to encounter. So I agree with you, and I agree with that person. At the same time, I think we're going to have to do, we're going to have to do something different because black people are being purged from the workplace. And if we're not able to work at these white companies, where are we going to work? If we're not yeah. able to get the resources we need, we, you know, what are we going to do? So I think there is some necessity for us to try to pull some resources together. But I do think that if we do that without being prepared for resistance and not having a strategy to deal with that resistance, it's going to fail. So I, I, I agree with you. You know, what you're saying is, yes, they, they, we still have to go to them for the loans if we get loans. We still have to go for them for the licenses if we get licenses. We still have to go to them for the real estate required to run a business if we want to do whatever kind of business. We're still going to have to deal with them, and that is the major problem. But the other side of it is, do we do nothing at all? So I think it's kind of a, a real tricky situation, but I do think eventually we're going to reach a point where we're going to have to do something. And what that is, I'm not sure, but we're going to have to do something uh, because uh, pro progressively things are getting a lot more uh, resource-wise, are becoming a lot uh, dingier, you know. So I don't know. Um, that was, I, I just agree with both of you, actually. Well, and they were also saying that the Koreans and the Indians were – more quote-unquote progressive than we are because they have come into our community and they have built businesses in our community. And it's like we don't have any control over that. You know, they were, they were like saying that we were being lazy because we allow, them to, we allow them to come into our community. We don't have any control over that. Exactly. Just like I was saying, we, we don't control the land. We don't control anything, you know, mm -hmm. here. Right. But, and something else, too, that is overlooked. At least I know it's true in Chicago. I can't speak for the cities. They restrict where they can go as well. Where the Koreans and the Indians can go is restricted, and the Arabs. Matter of fact, an Arab uh, store owner told a, a friend of mine, or at least a lady I worked with, you know, because she, you know, they, you know, I guess she used to go to a store and they would talk. And he said when they came to get a business license in Chicago, they were told they could only open a business on the south and west sides of Chicago the black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So even these, these non-white people that set up businesses, they're held by certain restrictions too. They don't control where they go necessarily either. So, but we definitely don't control whether or not they get a loan or whether they get the get corner gas station. That's, that's out of our control. What we can control, though, 
is whether or not we support those businesses. Unfortunately, a lot of times in our communities, they're, only, they're the most, they're not necessarily the only businesses, but they're generally the most convenient businesses. But, you know, we still have things we can do. You go into the arrow place and buy fish. You know you're not getting good, clean fish, not because he's Arab necessarily, but because nobody respects the black community in terms of, of quality of merchandise because it's not necessary. So you can stop going to that Arab place and buy fish and fry your own fish. You cannot let an Arab fry your hair, either stop frying it or go to a black person. Uh, there's a lot of things we could do differently. Um, you know, black people will start businesses, and we won't support those businesses. Uh, black people will start businesses and not be prepared to run a business. So yeah. there are things that we could do, and, yeah, we're going to get opposition depending on what it is, but we have to have a plan to deal with that. But I think it's at the point now where we're going to have to do something. Okay. Thank you. That's yeah. all I want to say. Mm-hmm. Caller in Florida, our uh, retired firefighter, your line should be open. Do you have a question for Pam? Greetings, everyone. Greetings. Uh, my, I hope I'm timely with my question. Uh, my question uh, is um, each generation, uh, uh, logic tells me this, each generation, uh, not a significant number of non-white people uh, develop an understanding or attempt to develop understanding or even have the interest to have an understanding of the system of racism and white supremacy, what it is and how it works. Uh, there are uh, some who do that kind of sustain us from generation to generation, such as the Ida B. Wells. I heard that name tonight. Uh, and uh, let's say another example would be a Harriet Tubman. Uh, even during Harriet Tubman's day, uh, we can look back on it and think, okay, well, it was obvious the system of racism and white supremacy and how it operated back during that time. But even she understood that it was a lot of black people who did not understand the system of racism and white supremacy during that time when she made the quote, which is well recorded, the quote that she made that I would have brought a lot more, a lot more people off the plantation if they understood that they were uh, being mistreated. Uh, my question is, what is your uh, opinion or strategy or idea on how to uh, basically uh, step up the numbers of non-white people who uh, would even become interested in the system of racist white supremacy, what it is and how it works? What, what would be your, your strategy, your, your opinion on how to improve that? Um, that's a good question. Um, the first thing that I always recommend, because I don't, you know, I don't have any, any, you know, any, you know, hardcore solutions. But the first thing I recommend is for people to to educate themselves and work on changing their own behavior. Uh, and a lot of times, uh, that's that's a start. If you're around other people, particularly if you have children, you can. Change, when you change your behavior toward other black people, you're also teaching your children to change their behavior. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're respectful of other black people, 
you're teaching your children to be respectful of themselves and other black people. Mm-hmm. You know, if you tell your children you love them, if you encourage and support them, if you're good to your spouse, if you're considerate of your neighbors, a lot of sometimes a lot of that will go a long way of establishing credibility for what you have to say. Uh, right as far on. as yeah, as far as other people are concerned, you know, one thing I noticed about people, and I'm not real good at this because, you know, sometimes I get sensitive, but people are always watching you. And many times people will find themselves, if they see that you're operating from a position of integrity, you can sometimes influence people and not even know it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not what you say, it's what you do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Right on Yeah, the one thing that I need to work on is sometimes wanting to preach at people, wanting to berate people, (laughs) Mm -hmm. wanting to chastise people, and that doesn't work. So communication skills are real important uh, because if people don't really want to hear what you have to say, it doesn't matter what you're saying. If they feel you're putting them down, they're not going to hear you. Uh, But I think a lot of it has to do with what we do in everyday life uh, as far as influencing other people in other ways. Uh, You could give a book for Christmas. You could, you know, if you're going to the movies with someone and, you know, I mean, invite them over to your house, rent the movie, and maybe you can talk about what you see in the movie. Not in a way where they can't watch the movie, but just maybe making comments about the things you see. I've, I've noticed that among a couple of my friends that has seemed to be successful is that we'll talk about current events, and then I might, you know, say something about what I noticed about this particular thing. But the one thing I have noticed also is people have to be open to it. Yeah. And if you find somebody's not open to it, just move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. I say don't spend a lot of time trying to bend anybody, twist anybody's arm. If they're not open, they're not going to hear you. Move on to the next person. Right. And, you know, and try maybe to have a conversation, you know. But I think communication skills are something that we all need to, probably most of us need to work on. I know I really do. Mm-hmm. But I would just say the way that you treat people says a lot about uh, trying to um, enhance a little bit more understanding between black people. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, your your improvement skills, uh, I, 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 I recognize uh, that uh, it was pretty good because, I, I I agree with your answers. I think okay. I think that's a good idea. Okay. <laughs> Especially when you mention about example, people yeah. people are more are more trusting of you, and you develop more credibility when when I see you mm-hmm. and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you know, and it duplicates on what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they may never say anything to you, but people are always watching you. That is true. I, I had a, I had a college professor to tell me that over 20 years ago that that you're going to have a certain amount of people who you you may not even know you may may never meet that you have influenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have influenced, and you they never come up to you and tell you that. But you but you made such an impact on them just by your 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 presence from the outside. You know, from the person you know, identifying you and what you may have said and duplicated what you were doing. It could be something positive. It could be something negative. Right. Thank sure. you very much. Yeah. Uh, Never, you know, try to avoid returning meanness for meanness. 
You know, I wish I could declare like one day a month, black people just go around being nice to other black people. <laughs> wow. The Association of uh, Black Psychologists—they have that. Uh, Nola Avery really? on the program. Yep, they—they uh, they have a day that's supposed to be be nice to black people and treat them hmm. well. We had them on the program uh, last year. Uh, I was thinking to get them back on to talk about the events in Ferguson. Anyway, I'm trying to hurry up because we have uh, hey, okay. a lot of people dialed in. So, uh, folks, can just get to your question. Just get to your question. This is not story time. Uh, we can do that on the Saturday program. Just get to your question because uh, I'm not hanging out extra because uh, we're on every day for the rest of the month so we are very active if you don't get it in today we can do it on saturday and all that so just get to your question uh the person that dialed in uh oh i guess this is uh lashes uh if you had a question for pam i'm getting your line right now uh your line should be open hi good evening pam how are you okay how are you i'm good quick question have you been keeping uh an eye on what's going on with the with Reverend Pinckney in Michigan, dealing fighting against Whirlpool, who is uh, trying to remove a lot of the black residents off of the shoreline over there. And what's that the name of the city? Right Ben now. Harbor. Benton Harbor. Thank you. Mm-mm. Yeah, Ben Harbor. Have you heard of it? Because he got like thirty months to ten years in some type of lockdown of some sort because he was able to organize a lot of black people and some Urugus out there, too, to combat and fight against all Whirlpool, pushing people out of their homes and stuff. So I want to know if you've heard anything of that nature in your neck of the woods or in your region of the United States. No, I haven't. Uh, wow. No, I haven't. I'm, I'm trying to look it up now. Huh. And it's Benton Harbor with a B. Benton Harbor in Michigan. Mm. No, I didn't. So he did. Okay. So no, I just something I have to look into because no, I didn't know anything about it. They say he was convicted. He was charged with something where he's. I know basically he's going to be locked up for like thirty months, ten years in that bracket. So that's all I know, and I've only mm. heard about his history basically on this show called by the host Webster Tarpley. Because he interviews Reverend Pickney like every year, not every year, every weekend. And he was letting people know what was going on in Michigan on his show. So that's the only reason why I knew about his case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see here something in 2007 that he was convicted uh, on five counts of voter fraud, four felonies and one misdemeanor, which he, for which he could face him 20 years in prison. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, what else is uh but it's chunked up yeah. charges that's what the community is saying like wholeheartedly mm-hmm. yeah okay now here's something else in 2014 anyway I'll, I'll look at it no i haven't uh they said he was convicted of voter fraud though so wow well. uh, is that it okay thank you yep goodbye yeah no but thank you for telling me about it i'll, I'll sure, look no I'll, problem Look at it. Uh-huh. I think this is Joe from D.C. Joe from D.C., did you have a question for Pam? Yes, um, welcome back, Pam. Um, I would like to make a suggestion to your website, if possible. How are you doing, Gus? If possible, um, can you talk about the, the businesses that black people have created in the past and what white people have done to stop their progress? Um, and the reason why I brought that up is because I'm a homeowner, but I did not know when I became a homeowner how to use my house 
to build wealth. And you also mentioned Detroit about what they did in, um, in Detroit and how the people lost their homes. And I was not aware of how to build wealth. Um, owning a home, you can pay for your kids to go to college, you can borrow money against yourself. So that one is a suggestion that I just wanted to bring up and let you talk about. And, well, and um, welcome back. Thanks for taking my call, guys. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I'm not a big one for building wealth in a home. I see a home more of as an expense. I think the the key to home ownership becoming uh, something that you can build wealth on is the ability to control that land and the community in which that home exists. And unfortunately, what Mr. Fuller had mentioned also was the system does its best to, to prevent black people from having second-generation homes so that you have anything to pass along to your children. I see it happening all over the United States for black communities or these communities that were black being gentrified out of existence. So I, that's not something I particularly advocate is a person using a home as a, as a, uh, as a tool to build wealth. I, I, don't, I don't see that as being really practical for the long-term future. Not to be discouraging, still good to have a home, but I just see it, me personally, as a place to live. That's what I see a home as because I know I don't control the land or the taxes or what happens to that neighborhood. So, you know, I can make all the plans I want, but. Eminent domain. Uh, thanks for the question, Joe, in D.C., person from a blocked number. Did you have a question for Pam? Caller with a hand up, block number. Did you have a question? Nancy Hurd? Yes, ma'am. Uh, okay. Um, oh, wait a minute. This is karma. I thought this was somebody else. Uh, this is somebody, I thought it was New Parlor. Didn't get a question in? No, I can wait. I can wait. Okay. Uh, the last person, that way we hit everybody. Um, the person, oh, they hung up. person at three, uh, they hung up. I thought we had one more hand up. Uh, I think we got everybody. Unless uh, the person that just uh, you dialed in and you had a hand up, uh, unless you uh, dial back in like in the next 30 seconds, uh, that would mean we, we hit all the callers, and I'm super satisfied. We can get karma because I told her I was going to let her get her uh, response in, and I'll be satisfied. Uh, okay, I'm not seeing them. Karma, did you want to go ahead? Well, Pam um, uh, was talking about why people have a a particular vengeance against black Americans and saying that it might be that they owe us money. But uh, my readings, a lot of the readings I've done, especially No no Bone Unturned about the anthropologists at the Smithsonian, I think it's just that uh, they just owe us a lot of land, which is is, is a wealth of another magnitude when it comes to money because that's why Europeans go where they go, for the land. Well, I, I'll just uh, say, I, when I say they owe us, I'm thinking about everything. Uh, I'm thinking about the, uh, the, the wages that were, that were never paid, the land that uh, was stolen, uh, just so much. As a matter of fact, there was a professor that did a... Um, he did a study or whatever. He just he came up with a figure that if we were compensated for 400 years of, sla- of, of free labor and all the other things, that it would come up to a debt of over a trillion dollars. 
So I think that's one reason that black people cannot look to the system to ever acknowledge what it did, because not only would they owe them the the money and the land and whatever else they owe us in terms of physical wealth, they would also have to be charged with crimes against humanity. And once you do that, now you have to charge individual people or institutions with a crime. And we know that they're never going to go along with that. And I think that's why reparations for the descendants of slaves will never be a reality if we leave it up to the white supremacy system. We can watch Japanese get reparations. We can watch Native Americans get reparations. We can watch uh, people from Mars and Martians and and people from uh, outer space get reparations long before we will because it's not just the money. It's the idea that you have to have a crime charge. You have to charge someone with a crime. That means the corporations that still exist, the institutions that still exist, the white people and their descendants, somebody has to be charged with a crime. So, um, I, you know, when I speak of it, I don't just think in terms of money. I think about the whole ball of wax. And that's why I think that we can never expect the victimizers to ever own up to what they did. And maybe that's one reason they keep a foot on our necks is because they know that they're unwilling and unable to compensate us for the crimes. The caller at uh, 1502, did you have a question you want to get into, Pam, 1502? Um, very good question, uh, Pam. It's um, Temple Compton. Good to hear you. Um, my question is, um, during the protests going on in New York and all over the world with the Michael Brown and the uh, Eric Gardner case, when I talk to people about that protest, it's like, our people get happy because they say, well, we got white people protesting too. It seemed like they couldn't do it on their own. Like white people got to be in our movement when it comes to protesting. Why do we, why do some of my people feel that way? Like it got to be whites there to, to, I guess, to make the movement go forward. Like if they ain't there, it won't happen. So um, that's my question. Okay. That's a good question. Um, I think the reason black people feel reassured is black people want to believe they're good white people, number one. And number two, black people, even if they don't admit it, even if they can't admit it, even if they don't understand it, know that nothing really happens unless white people give the go-ahead. So I guess they may think that with white people being involved, maybe something good will happen. Maybe something will come out of it. Because I think that's an acknowledgement of our powerlessness, that we feel we need white people to sign on. So we, you know, that's why I say I don't really believe that black people are as disconnected and as clueless as we might appear to be. I think on some intrinsic level, some instinctive level, there are certain truths that we do know because our behavior reflects it. When white people come around, we change. So how is it that we don't understand that there's something there that's going on that shouldn't be going on? So I think that white people reassure us that they're good white people and they reassure us that maybe something good will happen. Uh, that's what I think we get happy about. And the white validation. They're recognizing our humanity, so we think. Uh, I think we nabbed all of the callers. Um, I thought there was a person that dialed in from a block number, but I opened their lineup and they, uh, I did not hear a uh, response. Um, I'll even double check uh just to make sure i did not uh miss their line but i thought i'd open it up um the caller if you uh hang on a second uh because it wasn't you it was uh 
the person that uh, dialed in from a block number. You had a hand up. Did you have a question, or were you just hanging out? Do you have a question? You're just listening? Okay. I would assume they are just listening. Uh, your line is open. I'm not hearing anything. I'm assuming you're just listening. Right on. Uh, the person, did you have a, a quick, and I mean like 20-second quick question? Yes, Gus, it's me, 404. What I, what I wanted to, did you get that email I sent to you about the Michael potential? Get, yes. Yes, I did. I called the uh 100 Blacks in Law, because um, it looks like he's affiliated with that organization, to uh, see if they could patch me through to him. They're supposed to get in my contact information. I don't know, with you know, the holidays, it's been my experience that a whole lot of people, things shut down until the new year, so I don't know if they'll, if they did it immediately or they'll get around I'll get to you it. A contact, I'll get you a contact number for him, because quickly to what Pam was saying and what you are saying about the nullification that once you get involved in a sexual relationship with a white person, the destructiveness of that relationship. I heard him. I'll send you a sound clip of it, Gus. He was on a show this past Saturday with Ralph Pointer, who is the husband of Lynn Stewart, the attorney. Ralph Pointer uh, is a black male. Right. Lynn Stewart is a white woman. Is a white woman. And he was stating, um, Michael Grace was stating that about the white allies, now he is totally against it, and how the best attorney was Alton Maddox and whatever. And would you know, Mr. Porter came out and he was defending Lynn Stewart. Oh, she's the best thing that happened to since John Brown and on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was nauseating. And I, I to remember what Pam, I said, this is that nullification factor again, that you, you, you involved with a white woman and you have to defend, you have to defend him. And he was going, he was talking like automatics was nothing and all of these other famous black attorneys that Michael kept calling up. And he was knocking them out and said, oh, Lynn Stewart did this, and she defended all these Black Panthers, and she did this, and she did that. And I said, it, 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 was, it, was, it was terrible. It was really, really terrible. I'll send you the sound clip that you might want to play on the show. Dang, I'm not surprised. Um, I will give you the uh, final word, Pam, anything you want to get in before we uh, conclude. Uh, the website, again, is racismws.com, racismws.com. Tom, uh, feel free to check it out. Great resources, the books, the blog, racismws.com. Anything you want to get in, Pam? Yeah, just real quick. I wanted to say, you know, I still have the racism, counter-racism boot camp course online. I haven't added any new lessons to it, but, you know, that's something that, you know, perhaps people, you know, everything on the site is free. So, you know, if you think you might want to go and get a refresher or just get a little information, you can do that. Uh, but I did, this is, this, this is the only thing I really want to leave everybody with, and that is when you see a black person on the mainstream media, in the mainstream media, whether it's an entertainer, politician, pundit, broadcaster, makes no difference. If they are white supremacy, mainstream media allows them to talk, be aware that they're going to be that they're being used to promote white supremacy, whether they know it or not. And that's movies, TV, radio. Any any time a person gets a chance to voice an opinion, beware that that opinion is more than likely going to be leveled against your best interest and the interest of your people. So I just say keep your war hat on, because the war is real. 
RacismWS.com. RacismWS.com. Definitely a pleasure to have Pam back on the program. Hopefully it will not be so long uh, before your next visit. Um, always in a, a hoot to have you uh, on the program to get your views out uh, to the listening audience. I know a lot of folks uh, down through the years have heard you uh, many, many times and read your books, and uh, they just are really grateful uh, anytime they get to uh, hear your voice on the program. So definitely thank you for hanging out with us uh, this evening, and I uh, know folks will be supporting to get the books, uh, going to the blog, and uh, Black Code Files as well. Uh, some of the audio clips that you put together of uh, Mr. Uh, Neely Fuller Jr.'s works also. Um, I hope folks will survive the madness. As I said, I got a lot of emails from folks who are having a tough time with uh, all of the nonsense uh, associated with December 25th. Uh, just stay the course. Uh, as Pam said, try to practice as much patience with other black people as you possibly can. Uh, and even be mindful, you know, not trying to force uh, discussions of racism on them, uh, you know, just put it out there that that's something that you think is important that we should be talking about. And if they should change their mind or become interested uh, in wanting to have an exchange of views on racism at some point, your door is open. Uh, they can get in touch with you and what have you. Just leave it open uh, so that it's not becoming a, a source of conflict, uh, trying to force the issue uh, on other victims who just are not ready at this particular point to be honest about the war being waged on black people. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed hearing from Pam, grand hearing from all of the callers. Uh, we're on every day for the end of the month. I saw Renitia Tate listening to. I know Pam's a big fan of her work, uh, Pieces of a Puzzle. Renitia Tate been with us many times. Uh, hopefully we can have her uh, back on the program as well. Uh, our schedule is full for the rest of the month. Uh, we're here tomorrow, book session number one, American Sniper. Uh, Chris Kyle's work, Racist Suspect. Uh, seriously, when you talk about suspected race soldier, right there. Uh, Saturday, the compensatory call-in uh, news, workplace racism from the past week. Uh, Sunday, NYC Resistance will be on. I know he has been uh, paying a lot of attention to what has happened in New York. He was with us this summer right after Eric Garner was uh, murdered. He'll be with us this Sunday to uh, get what he's seen in the week since these officers were shot and what's been happening. Uh, Monday, uh, Dennis Norton will be with us, black male. Uh, he has written extensively about racism, white supremacy in Sweden the world. Uh, he touches on Area 8, everybody's favorite topic. Uh, he'll be with us on Monday, uh, and we'll be riding out for the rest of the year, so just stay tuned. Normal broadcast time from now till the end of the month, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific for all the programs. If you get lost, confused, have questions, racism hyphen notes, or excuse me, untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com. Drop an email. You'll be able to hook you up with information. Uh, you can hit Pam Racism WS at gmail.com. Racism WS at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Remain safe again under conditions of war. Under conditions of war, sobriety would be best. Under conditions of war, sobriety would be best. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to maximize black self-respect 
each and every time we are in contact with another black person in all areas of people activity, help us remember this works against the system of white supremacy to be courteous, kind, helpful to other black people. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>